Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. See, see, they're not telling the truth about this expense thing. That's what I'm talking about. That's the point that I'm making. Got money to start all these old phony wars and whatnot. Dropping bombs, helicopters falling out of the sky. On to the war between Israel and Hamas. The four-day truce has been extended by two more days. America's top diplomat, Antony Blinken, will be in Israel again, his third trip to West Asia in less than two months. So what will be on his agenda? A permanent ceasefire. You see, the Israel-Hamas war has been brutal. Thousands of lives we know have been lost, tens of thousands of people have been displaced, and then there is the economic cost of war. It has almost crippled the Israeli economy, not to mention Gaza. Conscription has taken thousands of people out of the workforce, businesses have shut down, and consumer demand is at an all-time low. Israel's central bank has pegged the war's cost at $53 billion. The war is costing Israel more than $250 million every day. This financial loss could have serious repercussions. Here's our report. Israel's war on Hamas is taking a toll on its economy. The Bank of Israel has reduced the country's economic growth. As per reports, Israel's economy is shrinking. Its currency, the shekel, is at a 14-year low. At the same time, Israel's sovereign debt rating has been downgraded. The central bank has warned of serious fiscal ramifications. They have urged the government to implement a new budget. Let's understand the cost of Israel's war in numbers. The central bank has pegged the cost of war at almost $54 billion, which means that Israel is burning almost $270 million every day. The army has mobilized almost 360,000 troops. That's almost 8% of Israel's workforce. Along with this, Israel has expelled Palestinian workers since the war began. Palestinian and immigrant workers made up over 16% of Israel's workforce. The shortage of labor has forced businesses to shut down. Economists estimate that if the war carries on, it will cost Israel 10% of its GDP or gross domestic product. Despite the high economic cost of war, Israel says that once the hostages are released, the war against Hamas will continue. Here is also the framework that says it is possible to free every additional day 10 more hostages. This is welcome. In the same breath, I also said to the president that at the end of the outline, we will return with full force to achieve our goals. That is the elimination of Hamas, ensuring that Gaza does return to what it was. And of course, the release of all our hostages. If Israel continues with its military operation, it will become one of the highest military spenders in the world. Currently, Israel has spent almost $54 billion. They are now among the world's top military spending countries. Israel has spent more than the military budgets of France, South Korea and Japan. And they are on the path to surpass Germany if the fighting resumes. As of now, Israel and Hamas have extended their truce. The fighting has stopped. Israel has pulled back some military equipment from Gaza. Hamas has released some hostages. 
but the war has taken a toll on both sides. The extension of the truce is for our benefit and it is also an Israeli demand. The Jews are also tired. The war is not only affecting us, it's also affecting them. Israelis are unsure about the ceasefire. They believe that the war will carry on. I believe that it's, uh, we need to continue the cash fire. It's very complicated because we want to win this war. But first of all, we need to show the world that the hostage is the first and we want peace and uh, bring the children and the women home is the first things. And later we can continue the war. If the fighting erupts again, Netanyahu will have to amend the national budget to save the economy. Otherwise, Israel could face one of its worst financial crises ever. I think Kissinger is clearly an extraordinarily brilliant man. But he did have this, I think, this fatal flaw of preferring to act without public scrutiny. Well, in Harper's Magazine this month, there's an article called The Case Against Henry Kissinger, The Making of a War Criminal. Explain, Christopher. I think he's a war criminal. Yeah, look at his brain. Look at his brain. I think he's a liar. I think he's responsible for kidnapping, for murder. My own view is that if we held Henry Kissinger to the standards we have begun to hold other leaders, other policymakers, and the standards to which we held policymakers in Germany and in Japan after World War II, yes, Kissinger ought to be the subject of an international tribunal, ought to be the subject of a legal process in the United States and elsewhere. What are we to make of these accusations? Henry Kissinger is the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize and the most famous American diplomat in history. Have you heard of Henry Kissinger? He was 100 years old. He died today. He used to be America's top diplomat, quite a powerful and polarizing figure. For some, he was a pragmatic statesman. For others, he was a controversial war criminal. Kissinger was a practitioner of realism, a school of thought that emphasizes the use of power, hard power. He was instrumental in shaping America's foreign policy. Under his leadership, the United States dropped tons of bombs in Cambodia. He negotiated the American withdrawal from Vietnam and got the Nobel Peace Prize for it. He advocated an end to hostilities with the USSR, which is now Russia. It was called détente. He also ended 23 years of diplomatic isolation and hostility with China. Kissinger had some scathing remarks against India, which is quite undiplomatic for a statesman. And he remained a mover and shaker till the very end. So how did Henry Kissinger's years shape the world order? Here's our report. To analyze together what the Henry Kissinger was one of America's most powerful top diplomats. He died at his home in Connecticut. He was 100 years old. In some power corridors, Kissinger was a celebrated diplomat. For most, he was a controversial Nobel Peace Prize winner. Kissinger was born in Germany in 1923. He moved to the US in his teenage years before the Holocaust. Kissinger earned his doctorate from Harvard University. He lived the life of an academic for 17 years. It was Republican President Nixon who brought Kissinger into his cabinet and named him the Secretary of State. Who would have known that Kissinger would become a diplomatic powerhouse shaping America's foreign policy? By the 1970s, Kissinger was playing an important role in global events. He sanctioned the large-scale aerial bombing of Cambodia and Vietnam. He was instrumental in the withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam. 
and Kissinger was given the Nobel Peace Prize for it, making him one of the most controversial recipients of the award. He was a practitioner of realism or real politic, a school of thought that advocates the use of a state's hard power. Yet Kissinger was most known for his policy called detente. He advocated for better relations between the US and the USSR, what's now Russia. Kissinger pushed for more talks on nuclear arms control. He even called for the downsizing of the world's nuclear arms arsenal. It was Kissinger's policy to increase dialogue with China. His efforts led to President Nixon's historic visit to Beijing in 1972, ending 23 long years of diplomatic isolation and hostilities with China. Kissinger maintained ties with Chinese leadership even after retiring from office. Earlier this year, he met Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing. China sent their condolences. Chinese President Xi Jinping has sent a message of condolence to President Biden on the passing of Dr. Kissinger and condolences to Dr. Kissinger's family. Kissinger laid the foundation of America's diplomatic ties with China. Beijing continued to express goodwill towards Kissinger, despite having frosty ties with the U.S. in recent months. During his lifetime, Dr. Kissinger attached great importance to Sino-U.S. relations and believed that Sino-U.S. relations were crucial to the peace and prosperity of China, the U.S. and the world. China and the U.S. must inherit and carry forward Dr. Kissinger's strategic vision political courage and diplomatic wisdom adhere to the important consensus reached by the Chinese and American presidents at their meeting in San Francisco. Some say Kissinger pioneered peace in West Asia. He brought about a ceasefire in the 1973 Arab-Israeli war. It was called shuttle diplomacy. During the same period, he lent support to Pakistan during the 1971 liberation of Bangladesh. But Kissinger was no fan favorite when it came to India. He described India's then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi using an unparliamentary term and was later forced to offer a public apology. However, Kissinger's stance towards India changed over the years as he advocated for stronger ties between India and the US. Kissinger was active till his very end. He wrote several books and was a regular commentator on international affairs. For some, he was a political mastermind. For others, he was a warmonger. Either way, Kissinger played a major role in shaping America's foreign policy. Ireland saw the worst public disorder in decades play out on the streets of its capital city, Dublin, on Thursday night, with looting, arson, and assaults on police officers. As Willem Marx reports, it was all sparked by a single incident, but the subsequent riot involving hundreds of people has complex implications for Irish society. A knife attack outside a school in central Dublin left three young children injured, one of them seriously. Within hours, online messages spread that the suspect was from overseas and groups of protesters descended on the crime scene. They surrounded surprised investigators, according to Ireland's most senior police officer, Drew Harris. We could not have anticipated that in response to a terrible crime, the stabbing of schoolchildren and their teacher, that this would be the response. Police still have not released details of the original suspect or his motives. The situation escalated rapidly. 
with fireworks thrown at riot police. Large crowds of masked or hooded young men setting alight police vehicles and a city tram. Downtown stores looted and smashed. The following morning, parts of Dublin city centre still smouldered as burned-out buses were towed away. Drew Harris, the police chief, laid blame squarely on hard-right activists. We have a complete lunatic hooligan faction uh, driven by far-right uh, ideology and also then this disruptive tendency here and engaged then in serious violence. The leader of Sinn Féin, Ireland's main opposition party, Mary Lou Macdonald, said the right-wing riot had been preventable. This was an unacceptable, unprecedented collapse in policing. The idea that this violence was unforeseeable is frankly nonsense. These hate-filled mobs have threatened and brought violence to our streets before. Among the bigoted chants the night before, one directed against Leo Varadkar, the Irish Taoiseach or Prime Minister, whose father was from India. Varadkar, in a press conference Friday, described how pregnant mothers in a nearby hospital had been endangered, not by patriots, but by racists. These people claim to be defending Irish citizens, yet they put in danger the newest and most vulnerable and most innocent people. Those involved brought shame on Dublin, brought shame on Ireland, and brought shame on their families and themselves. But these violent actions did not occur in a vacuum, says social policy professor Matthew Donohoe from University College Dublin. There's lots of kind of interrelated fears and pressures that on some level are very complicated economic, social and political pressures that are kind of interlinked. What we see kind of with the trigger of the, of the riot is a small but vocal far-right faction that is able to uh, latch onto these fears and give people what looks to be you know, a simple, straightforward answer that involves demonising certain groups. Across Europe, the demonisation of migrants has helped fuel several far-right populist parties, including that of Geert Wilders. 35 the Dutch politician who's called some immigrants scum, but won the largest share of votes in the Netherlands' recent parliamentary elections. According to Owen Worth, global politics professor at the University of Limerick, incidents like this could become more common in Ireland because disenchanted voters have no legitimate political representation, unlike elsewhere in Europe. So nearly every single country has some sort of far-right party. And on the one hand, you can look at Ireland and say, well, that's a good thing. Ireland has been heralded as this country without a far-right party. Yet, possibly as a result of this, you've got these massive civil disputes and civil unrest, which is growing. And it's almost like they're sort of tapped out, catched out of the political system. They've sort of bubbled over, really, at the street level. But the street violence Thursday, says Jane Souter, a professor of political communications at Dublin City University, should still act as a wake-up call. The authorities really will have to act pretty quickly because we've been very lucky in Ireland without having this kind of far right. There's still an opportunity, I think, to try to put a lid on it, but that's going to require some sort of action and coordination. Prime Minister Varadkar announced the government will pass new laws allowing facial recognition software to track rioters captured on surveillance cameras and giving police new powers to prosecute those who promote hate speech online. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in Dublin. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still singing for St. Louis. 
It was very lazy police work. Rather than doing real police work, rather than calling Mr. Ru attempting to call Mr. Reiner. Despite no process of actually having a judge make sure there is probable cause. How was that enough evidence? Uh, you can just click a button. Turn into a night in jail for something that I didn't do. You know, the practice is still very much happening and that there are thousands of these a year. There are a few ways to get arrested in St. Louis. Well, okay, there are a lot of crimes you can commit to get to that point. But unless you do that crime right in front of a police officer, there's a process to be followed, evidence to be collected, witnesses to be interviewed. Police must go to a judge who has to approve a warrant and then an arrest can happen. But there is another way to get arrested in St. Louis. And almost exactly one year ago, Tim Reinhardt found out what that is firsthand. Your heart races a little bit, and then I said, he's probably pulling somebody else over, but he's pretty far back. And that's when he got out and he started saying, turn off the car, you know, yelling it from a distance. But then he said, put your hands out the window. And then I said, this isn't a normal, like this isn't a ticket. I have no idea what's going on now. Tim Reinhardt was right. It was not a normal ticket. Ted hadn't committed any crime. There was no warrant for his arrest. And among many things he didn't know at the time was that a week before Tim was stopped, a store clerk had taken a photo of his car and told the police he was a thief. But the clerk had ID'd the wrong vehicle, which sent police after an innocent man. It was a case of mistaken identity. So... I get out of the car. He says, turn around, put your hands up where I can see them. I'm like, you know, they are. I don't know how much higher my hands can get. And before I knew it, they were like, somebody was right behind me, grabbing my arms and putting them into handcuffs. So on November 27th, 2022, Tim was arrested by the Chesterfield Police Department. He eventually spent 24 hours in jail in St. Louis County before he was released. He was never charged with a crime. All this happened because of an unusual police policy, one that exists in few places outside the St. Louis region. That policy allows police to issue something that's almost like a warrant. It's called a wanted, but doesn't involve a judge's approval. The policy has led to years of lawsuits, and that now includes Tim Reinhardt. Earlier this month, Tim filed his own lawsuit against Chesterfield. And here to talk about that lawsuit and the wanted system, we have attorney Jack Waldrum in the studio. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Elaine. So, Jack, you were representing Tim Reinhardt in a lawsuit against the Chesterfield Police Department. Help us understand the wanted system. What is a wanted and how did it lead to Tim's arrest? Sure. So a, a wanted is essentially a... a uh, like a uh, an arrest warrant, except the judge doesn't approve it. And so a, any police officer who suspects that a person may have committed a crime rather than going to a judge and getting a judge to sign off on it can enter something into a computer system that would allow any other police officer in the St. Louis area to arrest Mr. Ryan, in this case, Mr. Reinhardt on site. And so <clears throat> Mr. Reinhardt was suspected of a crime. It was incorrect, as it turns out. And rather than doing real police work, rather than calling Mr. Re attempting to call Mr. Reinhardt, visiting his house, or, or 
um, you know, doing a number of things that could have verified exactly what happened. There was just a wanted put out for his arrest. And so about 10 days after this incident in a store, he's driving and he, he is pulled over by the Chesterfield police, as he described earlier. Mm-hmm. So this was a case of mistaken identity. Tim did not steal anything. And a store clerk, clerk took a picture of his car because they believed that he was a shoplifter. How was that enough evidence to arrest somebody? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, it it probably wasn't. And, you know, I think if somebody had done a little bit more legwork and um, had to present it before a judge, a judge may have had really good questions. Like, how do you know that the person in this car is the person who walked out of the store? And, you know, there was there was video at the time that really clearly linked the fact that that Tim was not the person who was who actually ended up taking something. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a wanted that was issued by St. Louis County. And you mentioned that there was, is a computer system. I mean, is that the only way that the uh, the Chesterfield police would come to uh, to know about this? Yeah. So my understanding is that a lot of police departments have like scanners on their um, on their cars. And so uh, if there is somebody with a wanted that's attached to a vehicle, so Mr. Reinhardt's vehicle was lawfully registered. Um, and so they, it's likely we don't know yet, but it's likely that these Chesterfield police officers got like a beep or a notification when they were driving in traffic and they saw Mr. Reinhardt's car and, and pulled him over. Uh, and arrested him without, you know, without any real process or without telling him why he was being arrested. As as he described, he was he had to walk on on I sixty four, and there's cars whizzing by him as he's he has no idea what's going on. He's a professional courier, so he's somebody who is drives all the time, and he you know he, he doesn't get tickets very often. Right, right. So then, what did the Chesterfield police officer who pulled him over know? Yeah, and that's something that we're finding out, and we don't know exactly. Um, it's likely that they knew that there was a wanted out for Mr. Reinhardt's arrest. Um, <clears throat> as far as we can tell, there's not there's not much communication between the departments, and it's it's really unlikely, as far as I could tell, that they would have known many of the specifics about what Mr. Reinhardt was uh, alleged to have done, and of course, what he did not do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but and. and from what was communicated to Mr. Reinhardt, it didn't appear that there was much knowledge on behalf of the police officers. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody at one point told him there's a theft, and that was about the extent of what he was told. Mm-hmm. Now, St. Louis County has a key role in the wanted system. And to talk about that, let's bring another voice into our conversation. Maureen Hanlon is a civil litigation staff attorney with Arch City Defenders. Maureen, welcome to the show. Hi, and thanks for having me. Now, Maureen, for the last six years or so, Arch City Defenders has been suing St. Louis County over the wanted policy, and that litigation is ongoing. Help us to understand the county's role here. Is it in charge of this policy? No, St. Louis County, along with other municipalities, chooses to use the wanted policy. So it's a, as you noted, it's a unique procedure really to the St. Louis region where, you know, St. Louis County issues thousands of these a year. Um, and they have done so despite litigation, despite, you know, appellate decisions that have warned them about the constitutional problems in doing so. And so St. Louis County here, you know, directs their officers to that they can use a wanted if they want um, instead of going to get a warrant. And so a St. Louis County police officer 
if they want to speak to someone, believes they have this tool available to them where instead of having to do investigation, instead of um, having to sort of follow procedural steps to get a warrant, like going to a judge, just basically for their own convenience, can issue a wanted to have that person arrested by really any municipality that also has access to this computer system called Regis. Mm-hmm. And so here, St. Louis County, um, you know, I'm not familiar with the facts of this case. I'll let Jack speak to that. But, you know, St. Louis County police officers can, based on the direction and sort of the actions of the county, use this tool to have people summarily arrested despite no process of actually having a judge make sure there is probable cause to justify that arrest. Mm-hmm. And is it unusual for police to know so little about the person they're arresting? No, not at all. I mean, so the the Regis system, one of the, the long ongoing issues in the lawsuit has been that police officers issue these wanted and then completely unrelated police officers who know nothing about the situation end up arresting an individual. So that that's really distinct from something like where there's an investigative team and there's different people on the same you know, the same squad of detectives, people are used to seeing that on TV shows that are maybe sharing information. This is St. Louis County puts essentially someone's name into a commuter system and then wholly unrelated municipalities are arresting individuals with really no information or belief or, or basis to justify the arrest at all. Mm-hmm. Jack, same question to you. I mean, is, is this unusual or is it actually quite common? Is uh, is other other departments arresting people? Oh no, for the police to to know so little. I mean, I think it'd be very very common when you think about how many wanteds are issued by different municipalities by St. Louis County um, every year. It couldn't it couldn't possibly be the case that you know an officer say in Chesterfield would know about some other investigation that had taken place from St. Louis County or an officer you know in any another number of different municipalities couldn't keep track of all the different wanteds that are being issued. Mm-hmm. And do you have a sense of how many wanted are being filed, Jack? No, I don't. And and one of the real troubling parts about it, Elaine, is just there's no transparency about it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you take, you know, the St. Louis City Jail, we know how many people are in the jail. We know what the demographic makeups are. We have no idea how many wanted are out. We have no idea what the demographic makeups are of, of those wanted. Um, there, it, there's, it's a totally opaque process, which mm-hmm. is, you know, one of the bigger problems with it. Yeah. And Maureen, for your part, do you have any insight into that about how many wanted are being filed? So because we have our litigation has been going on for so long against St. Louis County specifically, I can confirm that, you know, the practice is still very much happening and that there are thousands of these a year. Um, And so through the information we've gotten from Discovery and through Regis, I can tell you that, that, you know, St. Louis County, I think, has previously mentioned wanting to sort of limit the practice. Wesley Bell's office has has said that they believe the practice to be unconstitutional, yet the practice very much continues. And there are thousands and thousands of these every year just from St. Louis County, which is only, you know, one police department, and then you're layering on all of the municipalities on top of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I want to add one other thing to what Jack said, which is just not only is there no transparency from a systemic point of view, but there's no transparency from an individual point of view. So mm-hmm. there's nothing an individual can do to find out if a wanted has been issued against them. 
there's no public way to, to learn that information short of being arrested. Now, this wanted policy, it's been in place for decades. It's not just in St. Louis County or Chesterfield. In 2015, the Department of Justice called its use by the Ferguson Police Department a an end run around the judicial system. Why do you think this policy has stuck around for so long and in so many places in the St. Louis region and through so much criticism, Jack? Well, I, I think one is that it's sort of ingrained into the system, right? So, and it's from an officer's point of view, it's easy, right? Rather than you know trying to track down in this case, um, you know Tim and talk to him about what happened, uh, you can just click a button. And suddenly, you know that you're going to get the chance to talk to him in custody whenever you somebody pulls him over and brings him into custody. So I think from one perspective, it's just a very easy from police officer's point of view. Mm-hmm. Now, Maureen, you were on our show last year to talk about a federal court ruling that looked at the wanted system. The court found the policy legal, but also potentially problematic. Can you remind us what the federal court found? Yeah, the the court found that that wanted are not per se unconstitutional. So that not an essentially that it's not necessarily that in every situation they would be illegal, but that really in most they would because the court found that simply issuing a wanted for convenience or for a reason that doesn't align with the existing exceptions to a warrant requirement wouldn't pass muster. And so the the position St. Louis County took in that lawsuit was, as long as a police officer thinks they have probable cause, they don't need to go see a judge. And, and the court, I think, correctly noted that that would essentially obviate the warrant requirement, that, you know, there's there's been this long and trying protection for our civil liberties of going having to go before a judge. And the court said, you know, Simply not wanting to or having it be easier for the police officer not to do that isn't an acceptable excuse. And mm-hmm. so, even though the court noted that it, in many situations, so for one of our clients in that lawsuit, um, you know, I think probably for many others, that it's likely the use of a wanted would be unconstitutional. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. The average life expectancy in the U.S. is now 77 and a half years old. New data released today by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reveal something of a rebound after the number of years a person can be expected to live was knocked backwards during the COVID crisis. But as NPR's Ping Wong reports, it's still lower than it was before the pandemic. Elizabeth Arias crunches numbers on life expectancy at CDC. So the good news is that in 2022, life expectancy increased by 1.1 years for the total population. But there is a catch. The not so good news is that the increase in life expectancy only accounted for less than 50% of the loss that was experienced between 2019 and 2021. Those were the prime pandemic years. COVID-19 became the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. And average life expectancy in the U.S. dropped by 2.4 years. Now, even though the trend has reversed, the nation's life expectancy is at the same level it was in 2003. Basically, it's 20 years of lost progress. Arias says the gains in 2022 come mostly from one source. 
the main positive effect on life expectancy was the decline in deaths due to COVID. There are also fewer deaths from heart disease, injury, cancers, and homicide. But those were offset by more deaths from flu and pneumonia, birth problems, kidney disease, and malnutrition. Eileen Crimmins is professor of gerontology at the University of Southern California. She says U.S. life expectancy is terrible compared with other wealthy countries. We started kind of falling uh, relative to other countries in the 1980s, and we have just progressively fallen further and further behind everybody else. Crimmins says other wealthy countries in Europe and Asia do much better on preventing early deaths from heart disease, gun violence, giving birth, infectious diseases. These are things that don't require scientific investigation to know how to actually prevent them. Other countries prevent them. We don't. There are also huge disparities in race and ethnicity tucked into the U.S. life expectancy numbers. Researchers hope it's a wake-up call to policymakers to do things to improve quality of life and to reduce early preventable deaths in the U.S. Ping Huang, NPR News. I wear pink. 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 One in eight women are diagnosed with breast cancer. In 2017, there were 2,470 cases of breast cancer in men in the United States. Most women who are diagnosed with breast cancer do not have a family history of the disease. Every 13 minutes, someone dies from breast cancer. It costs a lot of money to have cancer, and that can affect the kind of care some people choose to get. KUT's Olivia Aldrich reports on an organization that's giving Texas women more options when recovering from breast cancer. Gloria Infante was diagnosed with cancer in 2016. Doctors found several large tumors growing in her breast. Her treatment included chemotherapy and a mastectomy, and she didn't have insurance. It was expensive. My De las Gloria speaks Spanish. She says her husband had to work harder while she was sick so that she could afford treatment. After her mastectomy, she says she would have liked to have reconstructive surgery. Es un costo caro, ¿verdad? Y nosotros no somos de, somos de recursos bajos. Entonces, por eso no podía hacerme la reconstrucción. Her family couldn't afford it. And she's not alone. Lots of women aren't able to afford what's seen as an optional surgery, but also one that can help with their emotional and psychological recovery. That surgery is very inaccessible for uninsured women. This is Susan Williamson. She runs a nonprofit called Mission Plasticos. They arrange no-cost plastic surgery for people who have congenital conditions or need reconstruction after an accident or illness. It's not an emergency. The women aren't in excruciating pain, so they're always pushed to the back of the list. They wait sometimes up to 10 years on a waiting list for the surgery. A few years ago, Mission Plasticos launched something called the Reshaping Lives Full Circle Program. It's specifically focused on providing reconstructive surgery for breast cancer patients who can't afford it. The program started in California, and this year it expanded to Texas with the help of volunteers at Austin Plastic Surgeon. Dr. Sean Arredondo is one of the surgeons at the practice. It's more than just one piece that has to fall into place for it all to work. 
Arredondo says there are a lot of moving parts that go into a pro bono surgery. For example, even if you're willing to donate your skills as a surgeon, you still need to find an anesthesiologist, and they typically bill separately. Mission Plasticos helps coordinate all these elements. It's really a very valuable way to connect with those patients. You take the breast cancer survivors and you move them into the Thrive sort of section, you know, because now they don't have necessarily the physical reminders of all they've been through. That physical reminder affects all people differently. Some report significant grief over the loss of their breasts, or that it greatly affects their sense of womanhood and femininity. Others don't feel that. It depends on the woman's individual relationship with her body. Among those who do choose breast reconstruction, many report improvement in their self-esteem and body image. But many women simply don't have access to all the options. A 2017 study showed that breast cancer patients with private insurance were more than three times as likely to seek immediate reconstructive surgery versus patients on Medicaid. Another study found low-income women reported the price tag had affected their treatment decisions, often at the expense of breast preservation or appearance. Those are the women Mission Plasticos wants to connect with. But finding them can actually be a bit of a challenge. Here's Williamson again. We look at any breast cancer organizations we contact. It's just very difficult to persuade the agency to partner with an organization. They're always worried about sharing patient information. So Mission Plasticos asks these organizations to share info about their program with the patients. And patients who are interested have to make the first move. They can reach out through the organization's website, or they can do what Gloria Infante did. She called the 800 number she saw on a news story about the Full Circle program. By that point, she was cancer-free, and she'd already accepted that she wouldn't be able to have reconstructive surgery. But when she saw the number on the screen, she thought, why not give it a shot? That's how she became one of the first Full Circle program patients to get care at Austin Plastic Surgeon. Una bendición. Sinceramente, una bendición. It was a blessing, she says, sincerely. Gloria had the first of two surgeries last month when her surgeon put in an expander, which helps stretch tissue to make space for implants. Gloria drives five hours to make it to her appointments in Austin. She lives in Alamo, Texas, near the Mexican border. And Dr. Arredondo says this kind of logistical challenge is a widespread issue for Texans in many areas of the state. They may have had breast cancer surgery, but then now they can't get reconstruction because there's no one in the area that will do it. And so for some people, going to a different city to get surgery is just not an option. Eventually, Mission Plasticos hopes to get surgeons in other parts of Texas on board because there are a lot of women out there like Gloria. She'll have her permanent implants put in after the new year, but she says she already felt better as soon as she came out of the first surgery, when she looked down and saw shape in her chest again. She says her mind felt happier, more relaxed, and it wasn't about pleasing other people but feeling good about herself. I'm Olivia Aldridge in Austin. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. 
Today, the EPA proposed the strictest rules on lead pipes in three decades. Under the new guidance, most U.S. cities would have to replace lead pipes within the next decade. Well, to give you an idea, the EPA estimates about nine million lead pipes are still bringing water into American homes and businesses and schools. Let's bring in Angela Gayadine. She directs the Safe Water Initiative at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Hi there. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So what is your reaction to this news as somebody whose work centers on safe drinking water? Yeah, you know, we are at a moment where many of us are just overwhelmed by bad news. And this EPA new rule provides us really with a ray of hope that we are approaching the day when every family can trust that the water from their kitchen tap is safe, regardless of how much money they make, what their skin color is, or where they live. And so this is this is a very exciting moment for all of us um, working on this issue. Yeah. So I hear you saying it's it's exciting. It's a ray of hope. How realistic is this goal? Because again, it's it's a goal. It's <clears throat> it's a proposal. It's guidance. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would point to communities like uh, Newark and Benton Harbor, Michigan, where they were actually able to get their lead service lines out in a matter of a couple of years. I think Benton Harbor was about 18 months uh-huh. and Newark was about under three years. So, you know, while some people might say this is a pipe dream, pun intended, it's actually <laughs> achievable uh, in a lot of different places. And it, it really requires the political will and communities and legislators and elected officials working together to decide that they're going to make this happen. We know that this is an extremely popular issue. It pulls very well. And it's hard to argue with providing clean drinking water for your communities. So. And just step back and, and remind yeah. everybody, we know that lead pipes are bad. Water that's been through lead pipes is bad. But what is the impact of lead leaching into our drinking water? Sure. Well, there is, according to pediatricians and doctors across the country, they've all agreed that there is no safe level of lead. We know that it is harmful for children. It can cause developmental issues. It can impact IQs negatively. Um, but the American Heart Association and others have also identified that there are also risks to adults as well, including mm. cardiovascular disease. So across the board, we know that this is not healthy. Uh, we don't want to be drinking from what is the equivalent of a lead straw and getting them out uh, will make people and communities healthier and better. Yeah. Again, this is federal guidance. What is the role of city, county, local community advocates Mm -hmm. in pushing for these changes? I guess I'm thinking I hear lead water and sadly, I think Flint, Michigan. Sure. Well, I'm glad that you're mentioning uh, the community. So there's a a couple of pieces here to to your question. The first is, you know, I think the, the real heroes here are those who unfortunately have experienced the lead and drinking water crisis, such as those in Flint and Newark and and many other places across the country. And it's because of their advocacy and shining a spotlight on, you know, what it is like to live through lead and drinking water crisis. I don't know if you've seen the stories where there are individuals talking about in order to make their Thanksgiving dinner, they're opening up like, you know, dozens of bottles of water just to make potatoes, right? And so their advocacy has really shined a spotlight and has forced the Biden administration to make good on their promise. I think the other piece of this is, is a really great question about, you know, what responsibility do states and communities have to provide clean drinking water. And the good news is that there's $15 billion in the bipartisan infrastructure law for lead service line replacement specifically. So this is great news by Congress. It's a lot of money. It's probably, you know, the largest investment in in my generation for sure. But we know this money isn't going to go all the way. And so states and communities are going to have to figure out how can they take the money that's already out there, but they probably are going to have to find a way to come up with some additional money to ensure that all of the lead pipes are replaced. So states and communities definitely have a role in this too. 
That is Angela Gaia-Dean. She is director of the Safe Water Initiative at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And we have been talking about this new proposal out today from the EPA, the strictest rules on lead pipes in three decades. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Look at how they treat their children. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. A new docu-series is out that highlights the abuse that occurred at Circle of Hope and Agape Boarding School, both in Missouri. The series is titled Let Us Pray, and pray is spelled P-R-E-Y. It takes a searing look at the practices of the IFB, the independent fundamental Baptist group of churches that takes the teachings of the Bible literally. The stories told in this series will bring you to your knees and not in prayer because the victims of some key officials in these churches suffer so horribly. We're now joined by the director of the series, along with an attorney involved with the cases and a victim of this abuse. They are Sharon Lee. She's the director uh, with Roots in Overland Park. Sharon, good to see you again. Welcome back. Nice to be here. Rebecca Randalls is also here. She's an attorney representing the victims. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning. And also joining us is Ruthie Heiler. She's a victim herself. And Ruthie, thank you for taking some time. Yes, thank you for having me. And I should point out that all four parts of Let Us Pray, a ministry of scandals, are now available to stream on Max. And I got to tell you, these voices will bring you to your knees because what they had to endure was just almost unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's everything from I mean, it's kind of like the Handmaid's Tale when you when you learn about what goes on in in these churches and how these um these women are brought up from babies to believe that they have no voice and that men can do anything they want to them. Yeah. What were you trying to achieve here? Um, many things. Um, really want um, to to let women know that they they can use their voice and that they can be heard. And if they don't want to use their voice, that there are other people who understand them and have been through what they've been through and um, that they're not crazy. You know, Let Us Pray, this series does a great job explaining the history behind the IFB Church. I know this is a loaded question, but how did it originally come to be? Um, so it originated with uh, Jack Hiles in the 50s um, in Hammond, Indiana. Um, and this uh, it, it became a megachurch um, with uh, 10,000, 20,000 members, and then just has spread across America since then. And um, there are an estimated 8 million members in America. and Even today. Even today. Mm-hmm. And an estimated five to 6,000 churches. And I mean, if you just put a, a pin in a map, a mile from that place will probably be an IFB church. Hmm. Any reaction from the church as to uh, to what you put together here, Sharon? Have not heard any yet, but I kind of expect to. There were some people that uh, that dropped out that I think were intimidated by the church um, to drop out because they unexpectedly dropped out. There was even someone who um, a lawyer that represents the churches that was going to be a part of it, and he suddenly dropped out. So I think we'll hear something. You know, how did all of this uh, escalate to various boarding schools being built where pastors and others committed acts of abuse against children in the name of their religion? Go ahead, Rebecca. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, It's anytime you have this kind of 
authoritarian style church or organization of any kind, it opens the door for childhood sex abuse because there is no accountability anywhere above that. And so this has spread largely because there is no accountability. Meaning that the pastors, the leaders of the churches, no one's looking over their shoulder. They had free reign. That's exactly correct. Yeah. How did you get connected with, with these cases? Well, I've handled childhood sex abuse cases for over 30 years. Uh, I handled the cases against the Catholic Church, and I think that's how some of the victims came to find me, was because of our representation of victims of uh, clergy abuse. Mm-hmm. Now, again, in the part of this docu-series that drew our attention here were the boarding schools here in Missouri. What's the connection between those boarding schools, Rebecca, and the churches themselves? Oh, that's very interesting because it appears that at least some of them, the boarding schools are the churches, that it doesn't appear often that the uh, boarding schools are affiliated with the church, but they become the church which makes it even more likely that childhood sex abuse can occur because that takes um, accountability one step further away. What's been your challenge in representing the victims of, of, of some of the leaders of these churches? What's been that challenge? Oh, the challenges are, are, are huge. Um, the first is that some of these organizations are so secretive that it's difficult to find who actually is responsible for the the church or the organization. The other is that many of these boarding schools just pack up and leave and go to another state. Um, Circle of Hope, for example, started by bringing in children from Kentucky from a school there because the authorities were closing down or coming close to that school. Right. And so you have difficulty both with the, the geography, the fact that they're so mobile and the fact that there's no overarching organization that dictates what the um, policies or procedures for each of these places should be. How difficult has it been for you to get some of these victims to open up and tell you what happened to them? Oh, I tell you, um, the, we have an investigator on staff who's also a clinical psychiatrist. And so she's able to bring a level of compassion and healing to these victims. And so we haven't had as much difficulty with getting them to open up once they've contacted us, getting people to contact and come forward and, and say, I saw this has been much more difficult. Why is that? Fear. Mm -hmm. Absolute fear. Fear of what? Well, these people, these children have been abused their entire life. They've been told they're bad. And, you know, at some level, they believe it. And so when someone then from the church or from any organization tells them you're being bad, it automatically harkens back to that training that they've had their entire existence. And so it's much more difficult for them to come forward than it would be for an individual who hasn't experienced that kind of brainwashing. Yeah. In some cases, we're talking about young people, and I mean very young people, uh, as young as five years old in these facilities. How does that happen? Uh, a lot of our um, victims were adopted as children, and I think the adoptive parents didn't realize how difficult it was to raise a child who'd been in an abusive environment prior to coming to them. And so a lot of them were looking for help, for a way to, how do I handle this child whom I brought into my home? And I think about half of our victims were, faced that kind of situation. 
mom and dad are saying the kids are running wild. There's no discipline. I need some help. I'll turn to a boarding school here that maybe can help me do what I need to do. Yes. And for the, especially the teenagers, most of the teenagers that that we've talked to, um, they're just experiencing normal teenage stuff, but they're told by their pastors, by their uh, churches that, hey, this is evil. You need to take the evil out of these children. And then they use the Hiles method of child rearing to try to beat the kids into submission. Well, that doesn't work. That's not appropriate parenting. Is that what the method was? Just yes. To literally beat them into submission. Yes. And that's so well documented in the film, Sharon. Yeah. Well, they do things I had never heard of, like putting kids in the get right room, these isolation rooms. Isolation rooms. And yeah. they would be in there for for months. And then they would put they were there was one punishment where they would put them make them stand on a wall with their nose touching the wall. And um you think, yeah. okay, so that's for an hour. That could be for a month. It's like weeks. And then they have to they can't even raise their hand to go to the bathroom. And when they, they have to go to sleep and get up and go stand on the wall and they might give them ten minutes to eat during the day. Um, and then restraining. And then Amanda Householder, who Rebecca represents, she was she's the daughter of of the parents who own Circle of Hope. She's been on the show before. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. she was made to um, restrain kids and give punishments. Um, so it's it's just horrific that she still regrets to these day to this day. Yeah. Well, Ruthie Heiler, let me bring you our, our conversation. This is the right time to do it because you were forced to live through so many of the things that we're talking about here. What was it like for the young people forced to live in these environments? Um, it, it's very difficult, especially being born into it. I think a lot of us didn't really fully understand what was going on until we were adults ourselves. And it's almost like a programming on some of these children um, that are born into it. At what point in your life, Ruthie, did the light bulb go off and did you begin to think that what you were being forced to endure was pretty far out of line? Um, I would say after my abuse was essentially um, put back on me and and the blame and guilt of it was put on me um, as a child. Uh, definitely was very eye-opening because, you know, we were always taught to, um, you know, God was love and and love each other. And and it just didn't seem like that was the case for me. Um, And then after my third IFB church that I attended and every pastor was exactly cookie cutter and the same, you know, that's when I realized it was a cult. Can I ask you what kinds of things you saw? And maybe even endured yourself. Um, just a a lot of um, basically making children feel like they aren't worthy. Um, I I don't know how to really explain it. Hmm. Since you're my special friend. Come closer for a special treat. I'm going to let you touch me in a special place. It is never okay to touch someone else's private parts. Your mom and dad will tell you so. 
Sextortion, the idea of demanding money from someone by threatening to publicly share intimate images, is on the rise. And police say youth between the ages of 13 and 18 are the most targeted. Dr. Sherry Madigan is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and the Canada Research Chair in the Determinants of Child Development. Dr. Madigan, good morning. Good morning. This is, at its core, just a heartbreaking story. Um, and I think it's, it's a kind of story that for parents will send chills through their body because there are a number of things, including how do you talk to your kids about this? We'll get to that in a moment, but let's talk about the issue. In, in your practice, you've worked with youth who have experienced this, who have experienced sextortion, as it's called. What have they told you about what they've gone through? Well, it's devastating for them. And unfortunately, even though, you know, they're victims and they have incredible shame. And I think shame is one of the reasons many children don't actually come forward and, and talk about it. So I think that um, it's complicated. It has to be, you know, sort of talked about. And in therapy, one of the biggest things we do is try to work through the issue, but also just discuss um, the shame that can often come with these things. How does this unfold? I mean, I said in the introduction that by definition, it's about threatening to publicly share intimate images. But for a young person who is communicating with somebody online, um, just briefly kind of explain how how this would unfold. Yeah, so a child might develop, you know, uh, a relationship with someone they, they, they likely don't know face-to-face. -face. So it might be someone they've met online or through one of the gaming systems, like through our social media. And they the... The predator actually develops a trusting relationship with them. And so if a child's feeling isolated, they support them. And, and through that trusting relationship, eventually, oftentimes at least, um, you know, they then encourage them to start sharing photos of themselves. And then they, they ask for increasingly potentially, you know, uh, images that have a sexual nature. And, and that's, so, a, that, that, that's, that's a gradual thing that the photos, the, the, the demands for the photos, the request for the photos would increase over time. Yeah, and this is a, a typical case, but of course, every case is a little bit different. But, you know, they often prey on children who might feel isolated, who might feel lonely and actually really need, a, you know, a source of support or someone they trust or someone who's showing interest in them. And then they release those, you know, eventually released a photo. So this is like a grooming process, essentially. And then and then after that, um, they threaten the child. So the child it, feels incredible shame, feels violated, um, feels embarrassed that they've, you know, they trusted somebody with this, with these images. And then those are being used against them in a form of blackmail. A disproportionate number of children targeted by sexual extortion are boys. Why is that? And what is it that we're missing in this conversation? You know, it's really interesting, um, this, this sex difference, because most often times girls are, you know, more often uh, experiencing sexual assault. But in, in the case of sextortion, it is more often boys. And, you know, there's a few, you know, spe we can speculate why that might be. Um, boys maybe feel more shame um, about going forward and telling someone about this. So it's possible that, you know, they they feel like they can't reach out and talk about it because it's not something that they think um, has happened to anybody else, especially to boys. And so they don't reach out. And as a result, they can get in a really difficult situation where they get caught in that blackmail loop of sending more photos or sending money. And then they, they start essentially feeling paralyzed, like they don't know what to do next. And, and really, sadly, it can end in really um, in a tragedy. 
I said in the introduction that youth between the ages of 13 and 18 are the most targeted. And so what parents will want to know is how do you go about having conversations about what your child is doing online and how early should those conversations start? Walk, walk us through, I, I guess, what you've learned about how those conversations could look. Yeah, so I think you want to start these conversations way before the age of 13. Um, you want to start having them really early and often. And you can start by, you know, when kids are seven, eight, really just talking about the concept of consent and what that means and um, and just building in sort of a, a a safe space for kids to have these conversations so that later on, if something happens, they know they can come to you. And as they get older, you want to actually build in risks that can happen you know, online or, or offline, in fact, um, that involve a sexual nature. So you might um, tell kids about, you know, predators online as they get into that age 10, age 11 range. You might want to have what we often say, these what-if scenarios, you know. So what if somebody asks you for a photo um, where you're nude? What, what would you do then? Um, and you just keep generating these what-ifs because, for most kids, they haven't experienced anything like this yet, but you're trying to create a platform where kids can really feel like they can have a conversation about it. And what one of those, you know, problem solving scenarios should be when they say, like, when you say, what if someone asks you for a nude photo, you want to get them to generate some ideas as to what they might do. Mm. So they might come, you know, hopefully they, they come and talk to you. Um, if they, if you're, if, if for some reason they say, I'm not comfortable coming to you about that. You can say, well, who might you be comfortable talking to? Because we really want to create a space where you can go to someone because this is a serious situation. Well, it's also awkward and, and, and difficult. And one of the things, I mean, you know, how was your day at school? Fine. You don't want kids to shut down, right? You don't want them to just give you kind of the, the blank answer. And if you create that agency, is that a way to ensure that the kids don't shut down the conversation? Exactly. And if you start it early, then it becomes kind of normative to have these conversations. Hey, how's your online usage going? What's going on? Like becomes a part of your, you know, something that's comfortable for them. And in some ways, by creating that safe space, you're actually removing the stigma for when it does happen. And so that hopefully they can come to you and, and talk to you about it. And I, and I appreciate the parents saying mm. that they were having those conversations but it, it, and, and emphasizing we just need to have them early and often and coming back to it um, because as children develop, you know, sexual interest is is a typical normative adolescent developmental milestone. And so um, they are going to get more interested in sharing photos and, and you know, thinking about their online behavior and how that over overlaps with their sexual development. So you need to have that conversation early so that when that typical development happens, it's kind of like, you know, you've had it, uh, it's not awkward or it's not super awkward and you can actually um, have that conversation with out sort of the the strain because it's been normative to have it over time. Just briefly and finally on this, I mean, what about that idea of monitoring your kids' online activity? So much of our lives are wrapped up in what's on our phones. And you know that if you tell kids, some kids, not to have this account, and they might create, you know, kind of a fake account for their close friends or something like that. But at the same time, parents are wondering whether there's something that they're missing. Should they be, should we be as parents monitoring our kids' online activity? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question, and I think, um, you know, the, the truth is they're smarter than us on these online devices. So I do think that if you 
you can do some monitoring if you're worried about your child. And I think you have to adapt that monitoring decision based on the individual needs of your child and what if you think your child's at risk. But you can start early by setting these boundaries, having expectations, revisiting what it's like to be a good digital citizen, um, making sure that, you know, your child is, is sort of following that. And then if you're having open conversations about online usage, I think it's better to sit down with them and say, tell me what's going on on this phone. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what's happening out there. Ask in the third person, have, do you know anyone who's been sextorted or who's sending nudes? What do you think about that? Mm. You know, you take the pressure off the conversation about them and make it a conversation together. And I think if you can, um, you know, if you can create a space where it's a discussion together, then they're going to feel more comfortable telling you when something goes wrong. This is hard, though, right? I mean, I ask you this as a psychologist. You're also a mom as well. Yes. Yeah, it's a very hard conversation. And I've been there. I've I've been there where I've done the what if scenarios and then and then one of those what if scenarios came true. And I had to with your I was own so child. Glad that, with my own child. And and that's hard, you know. And the well, I had to take a deep breath and say, you know, thank you so much for coming to me. And let's talk about this and what we can do. And um, you know, and said, I'm so proud of you for thinking this through, for coming to me. I hope you can come to, to me again in the future. But it was hard. I can imagine. Sherry, thank you very much for this. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sherry Madigan is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary, also the Canada Research Chair in the Determinants of Child Development. You're saying if it was not for the white people who practice racism, white supremacy, Mr. President Obama would not be in the White House? If, if any black person who forgets that is getting a very, forgetting a very important fundamental, he couldn't even been running. His name would have been not been known. He wouldn't have had a white mother in Kansas. 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 Developing today, two protests with one message from students. We really just want to see something happen because nothing is not an option. We know that racism is bad and we knew that it was bad, but we didn't know that it had got to a point where people would be so bold as to, um, you know, act like that right in school hallways. This is the act that she's talking about in school hallways. A male student hurling racial slurs at a female student at Shawnee Mission East High School, sparking a fight. We're not showing you the actual fight because we don't want to promote teen violence. The female student, Brianna Brown, says she suffered a broken nose, and she was at tonight's protest, standing with her peers outside the Shawnee Mission School District headquarters. KSHB 41's Alyssa Jackson passed the mic to the students and their parents to hear their experiences in the district. This is a reflection of the students in the Shawnee Mission School District who say they're fed up. The racial slur and attack on Brianna Brown, some say was their breaking point. They say they want to feel seen, heard, and protected. And this situation should outrage everyone. Even my first year, I was walking around in the hallways and the teachers would be out in the hallways and you would hear somebody say, free the and the teachers would just stand there and do nothing. Two weeks after Brianna was attacked, she stands here still processing that it was her this time. She's no longer suspended, but she can't walk those same hallways. I just feel afraid to go back. She stands side by side with other students. Home and school are the two places you should always feel safe at. Brianna's story triggers Kevin Gomez's experiences. Ever since I've gone to this school, I've always felt like, you know, 
like that target on my back because of who I am and my skin color. As a father, Sean Brown says it's been hard on him, wishing he could protect Brianna in that moment. It breaks my heart. You got to imagine I go days, you know, trying to hold back tears and sometimes it doesn't work. You know, as a, as a father, I'm known, you know, to hold a lot of stuff in, be the strong one. As a collective, this crowd believes the school district has some work to do. I think their response is the same response they've been giving for years and it's filled with empty promises. There's only one Brianna, but there's multiple minority kids at that school. Who knows how many times this has happened. Some of what these students have demanded tonight is for a formal apology, for the attacker to be expelled, for the district to revise their policies so that students of color have a right to defend themselves in these situations, and also for district staff to take cultural competence exams. In Overland Park, Alyssa Jackson, KSHB 41 News. The male student, who we are not identifying because he's a juvenile, has been charged with aggravated battery. Shawnee Mission Schools continues to evolve how it approaches issues like this. The district hired its first ever DEI coordinator in 2019 and began training teachers and staff on the issues. Protests like those today put a spotlight on the district's challenges to eliminate discriminatory incidents. Dr. Tyrone Bates was the district's first DEI coordinator. He says the district has moved forward but must continually evolve. They're taking on society's challenges and issues, right? And so my challenge to um, the Shawnee Mission School District is to seek a way to move the role of coordinator into a, maybe a senior level, a position that really directly connects with the superintendent. Dr. Bates stepped down from the SMSD DEI coordinator position this past summer to start his own consulting firm where he does some of the same work with organizations. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. It's just very difficult. An emotional interview from a black teenage girl at the center of an attack at her high school. And she and her parents talk about how difficult the last week has been and what they hope happens now. Well, the white male Shawnee Mission East student who fought with the girl faces a felony assault charge. Good evening. I'm Christelle Bell. And I'm John Holden. Within the hour, supporters of the 15-year-old girl plan to gather at district headquarters in Overland Park to support her and call for change. Fox Force Malik Jackson is at Shawnee Mission School District headquarters tonight. And Malik, you had a chance to sit down with the family of the teen girl. Yeah, John and Christelle, they talk about how trying of a week this has been. Brianna's dad spoke about the burden that they faced ever since she was attacked. But there was a bit of good news. They talk about the weight that was lifted off of their shoulders when they got the call from the district attorney's office that this white male student would be facing charges. But this trauma still lingers for Brianna Brown, so much so that she's still scared to go back to school. I don't feel safe enough to go back where this can't happen again and 
next time it can be worse. I would say to his parents that they failed him. They failed him because they thought it was okay to raise a son to be able to say racial slurs and fight a girl. It's been a week since the fight that left Brianna Brown broken and bruised. A white teenage boy she argued with called her the N-word at least twice, confronted her, and then things escalated. She's detailing what went through her mind as they each threw punches in the hall after a disagreement turned physical. My mind was just like, oh no, what's going to happen? And I was just like scared, running out of options. I was just like, I have nowhere else to go. And the only thing I can do is stand up for myself. The incident causing pain and distress for her and her parents. People don't understand the stress it put on you trying to provide for your family and then trying to go to back for your daughter. Like this is something that I shouldn't have to worry about when I send my kids to these schools. The fight left Brianna with a broken nose plus bruises, scratches and a headache that still lingers. In the words of her father, that teenage boy broke her nose, but not her soul. I wonder where she get those jeans. <laughs> this family isn't fully satisfied with all that has transpired from the day of the fight up until now. They are moved by the support they're getting and the hope that something good will come from this. It's 2023. You never look for a day where you have to hear your daughter going through the same thing that you went through. But my child is alive. So I have to be thankful to God. Now, as you heard there, Brianna is not ready to go back to school and her parents support that. They say they don't want to send her back to a school that does not have a environment that is free of racial discrimination. Of course, we reached out to the school district and they say that administrators at that school are working with the students to address these concerns. Now here at district headquarters, in the next 20 to 25 minutes, protesters will gather in support of Brianna and they've already started to congregate over here in this park. Lot. Of course, we will bring you the latest from that protest tonight on Fox 4 News at 6 o'clock. At Shawnee Mission School District Headquarters, I'm Malik Jackson, Fox 4, working for you. She's pure alligator, pure white. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. Albino A rare all-white deer is in Warren County. Now, it's somewhere between a 1 in 10,000 or a 1 in 100,000 chance. These are pictures from Craig Swanson. You see it right there. It's pretty spectacular. He lives in Lacona. He spotted the fawn both Saturday and Monday. The Iowa DNR says it's either albino or leucistic. Predominantly white deer are protected by Iowa law. They're rare, but not expected, or unexpected, I should say, compared to any other animal species. Mm. Leucistic is not albino. Context of white supremacy. Um, mm, I, man, leucistic is not albino leucistic l-u-c-i-s-t-i-c leucism l-e-u-c-i-s-m the partial loss of all types of pigmentation including 
carotenoids. Leucism causes white coloration, white patches, spots, or splotches on the skin or fur. Leucism is also discernible, meaning different from albinism, because leucism does not affect the pigment cells in the eyes. When you see like the albino squirrels or whatever else they're talking about, they normally will include that they have vision problems. They'll have red eyes. That's what I said. When they show the town in Ohio, Olney, and some of the other places where they have uh, their like colonies of mutant squirrels, the albino squirrels, their eyes are red. That's why I said they freak me out because they look rabid. Like, oh, get that cannot be the mascot. They just look mutants. Like, man, but leucistic is not albino, which is important because sometimes they will see a critter that appears like it's all white, but then when you look closely, it's not. But they said that the nearly white critters are protected. They're like, dang. So it's you don't even have to be full albino if you leucistic anything close enough. Well, all right, we got you too. White brother, come on in. Close enough. Come on. <laughs> White presenting. Come on in. Come on in. Dang. Have to see if this is uh is this a mutation as well or what? What causes uh, leucism? I have to do some more checking on that. But leucistic is not albino. Compensatory call in. Today's date, December 2, 2023. So I have been told if you have commentary to share, suggestions, the number 605 313 five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the number again six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number one <clears throat> the grandcestor dr francis cress welsing a guest on the cows 31 times from 2009 all the way up until she passed right at the beginning of 2016 31 visits now within that I had many opportunities to chat it up with Dr. Welsing I think she is one of the few and I mean very few in all the thousands of programs that we have done and hundreds of guests that we've had on the program from all over the known universe it's like I don't know. I I think I could count them on one hand. The number of guests who are like, oh, wow, the cows actually might be somewhat constructive. Maybe. Dr. Welsing, one of the few, I think. I could be an error. I certainly would retract if there's any evidence they find a sticky note, what have you, in her files. Like, that worthless nick. <laughs> I retract. Like, my bad. My bad. Cross Dr. Welsing off that list, too. Anyway. 
Uh, among those years, I did have a number of chats uh, with Dr. Welsing, lots of things, chats where we were not on the program, chats with other people who were aware that, you know, she had been a guest on the program. And sometimes Dr. Welsing would, you know, share tidbits that he cannot actually share. And then sometimes other people share things that I could not actually share. One of those, now that she's been gone almost a decade, I think this one can be shared at this point and may already have been, but I'm sharing it not because I don't, you know, I definitely respect uh, everyone's privacy. I don't think their entire life should be open to the public, even after they're deceased. Uh, But this was shared not out of in a spirit of rumor or gossip or anything like that. This was just in the spirit of awe. Great, what I said when I started all of this, Grand Sester. I think in my memory serves even the person who shared it was this is what I think about when I hear Dr. Welsing and trouble, you know, when she would be over at Howard trying to do the Welsing Institute and it would be difficult to have space and all of that, like all of the intense labor that she invested dedicated to healing black people, victims of racism, really, that went on for decades up until the day that she passed away. This is what I think of. So I included the segment. They talked about down in Texas. Now they spoke to females who speak Spanish. And I suspect these would be females who are not white in racial classification. And they were talking about them getting breast cancer and how difficult it is. They have lots of data talking about uh, black females that once they get cancer, not that they're more likely to get it, but once they do actually are diagnosed with cancer, they are substantially more likely to die because of this disease. Lots of data talking about that. Racism probably are the reason in lots of different ways and manifestations in that process. Uh, I had a non-white person who actually does work in the health field share before Dr. Welsing passed away that Dr. Welsing actually suffered a double mastectomy. Wow. Again, this was a not, you know, going out to tell everybody and all that, but just wow. This was not a robot or someone who this was an actual person, victim of white supremacy who Uh, You know, just like anybody else had difficulties, problems, health problems. And in spite of all of that. Razor sharp focus to her cosmic assignment, replacing white supremacy with justice immediately. That's why I made sure to play that segment. And even beyond that, like I am sure it is not just non-white females who speak Spanish where breast cancer ends up being a problem and or what options, treatment options do you have in trying to deal with all of this? I am certain there's a whole lot of non-white females who deal with that and don't have the same access where you can go get whatever sort of, you know, reconstructive surgery and all of this, and you can still go out and present with your femininity. That's really important. Big part of your identity for folks. I'm really sure. And just with 
who counts as a woman on this planet. I already know the dynamics, but that was why I had to make sure I explained. That is why I played that. That was the grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. And just, I think that's important too, that, you know, any non-white person ever who has existed on the planet, these are not, you know, robots, uh, regardless if you agree or appreciate the work that they've done or not. Everybody is a human being. Sometimes they get a cold, they have to sneeze, get tired, all the rest. You know they're going to pass away. All of that should be thought of, too, when we get frustrated, when, you know, we don't like how folks are responding or presenting their views on white supremacy racism. The grandsister. Now, let's see. Uh, the guest from this past Wednesday Jamie Salazar, a suspected racist. That is how I listed him in the description. You can let me know live now or down the road metaphor in the future. If you think that's incorrect, if he should be categorized non-white person or at minimum, just take that down. You know, people can come to their own conclusions. I classify him as a racist suspect because I told a listener we read his book prior to him being a guest on the program, saw pictures of him, and he even talks about being a so-called uh, Mexican. His parents are Mexican immigrants, poor Mexican immigrants. He said, not sure that doesn't he didn't say non-white person. He didn't even say what's that uh, tacky person of color. He didn't say none of that. So we were both like, and I said, if, if you demanded an answer of me, I would say, I suspect he's a white man. When he came on the program, he said, yes, there are times when I am accepted as a white man. I said, how do you know? And he gave us the one I've heard forever. White people will start to launch into racist jokes. They assume I will think that they are funny and agree with them. What does it mean? to be white but that alone just the fact that he said yes I am accepted as a white man on a regular basis this happens and then giving the context that alone would be reason enough why okay this is someone who is able to practice function as a white man white woman white person you are accepted as white by other people who say that they are white racist suspect and even it seems like these are racists and they think you are on the team. I've asked that question forever, for years, so many times. I don't even ask anymore because I've never heard an answer other than yes. And it's no pussyfooting generally. It's like, duh, racists. They assume if you're white, you're racists. Duh. But anyway, you can check out what he and even beyond all of that the egregious errors I do not get excited to get at other black people they're wrong and you don't know what you're talking about and I've been waiting to go upside Benjamin Crump's head I don't care about none of that let me get at these white person you wrote a book about racism and put in that Carolyn Bryant Donham racist white woman killer of Emmett Till that she died in 2008 and recanted 
on her deathbed? Are you out of your suspected racist mind? Retired firefighter said, like, that might even be a willful lie, like, to kind of uh, give her a, a, a maybe she had some moment of contrition. Sorry about all of this. She's not even dead, man. Like, what are you talking about? She didn't die until this year. That's what I mean, like, egregious. Are you out of your flipping mind? And it shouldn't be that you get to come to black people with that sort of slop. That's the type of thing we read black love as a revolutionary act. Like that is so glaringly wrong. Like that 15 years you said she died and recanted because it's the double whammy. She did not recant. She did not die in 2008. Like, whoo, nobody looked at that. Like, Hey, uh, major error. Did you read the newspaper? Anything? She's still here. She could have even read the book. Like, what are you talking about, man? Trying to put me in the end. And I did not recant. That Negro wolf whistled at me, and I did not recant lying on me. That's what, come on, man. He had another, he said that white people defunded the police departments because of George Floyd. Are you out of your racist mind? That might be another willful lie to make it seem like white people are not racist or becoming less racist they're improving they're making progress on these issues anywho but that those would be additional reasons why racist suspect Jamie Salazar I still did learn quite a bit about the Camp Logan mutiny black veterans now a few tidbits what we heard uh, from this week and even my goodness whew, the cow's timing remains impeccable even with the swango reading they did a review of the Tylenol murders this week had someone on god awful social media say they were reading a totally different book Tylenol murders popped up there I'm talking to a white woman who works in the healthcare field, talking to her at the end of last week about Michael Swango. She says, of course, you know all about the Tylenol murders. Yes. I said, oh, yes, of course. Yes. Anyway, with all of that in Swango, one, even from Friday, one of my favorite moments from the book, too, really. But one of my favorite, this is, I guess, would have to be one B. My second favorite moment from the book, Swango finally gets to the continent. Africa. I didn't even think this book was about racism. I'm retarded. I didn't think this book was about racism. I thought it was just this wacky white dude pretending to be a doctor. It's all about racism. What does it mean to be white? White man gets to Africa. Zimbabwe specifically. Robert Mugabe. Say, uh, Brother Mike, uh, you're a smart white man why why come to the bush what's so cool about Africa you could go and make 20 30 times as much money as you're making here with us dark people what gives man why are you here he says oh man I love the blacks I would get that tat like that is right up there uh, when Jim Jones when he says uh, are we black proud 
That's down in Guyana, South America, uh, Jim Jones, serial killer. Hey, <laughs> got a white serial killer. But that's right up there. Black and proud. I love the black. He didn't even say black people. He didn't say the Africans. I love the blacks. What do you mean? Here with my brothers. I said that anybody. And Fuller said that too. Fuller said that he said anybody. I don't care if they're black. I don't care if you have eight grandparents uh, who, excuse me, eight great grandparents, all of them born right here in the U.S. I do not care. Anybody comes out. I just love me some black people. Run. 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 You find out later if this is true, so-called, but we anybody even talking like that is day that's exactly the way fuller <laughs> anybody even talking in that way i love blacks Woo-hee. run they got a syringe a grenade a bomb who knows <laughs> like run 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 he loves black people run he didn't even say people, he just said black. Fuller says that too. You're not supposed to just say blacks. It's black people because they do that dehumanizing. See? Anyway, it has been amazing. And even the timing of it, we get to Zimbabwe at the exact moment Henry Kissinger dies. I literally just went and looked because they talked about all that. Henry Kissinger, he's a war criminal. And I, they called him all of those names. You heard white man, I think, suspected racist Henry Kissinger. He's a liar. He's a war criminal. All oh, they went through that long list. He bombed people in Vietnam and Cambodia. And, oh, they didn't say, is this guy racist? I mean, you bombing all these dark people in Vietnam. Is that racism? Dr. King thought that was racism. Minister Malcolm thought that was racism. I think that's racism. All these dark people in Cambodia. Is that racism? I think it's racism. Is he a racist? They didn't say that. That would be one. Learn a little bit about it. Who is this? Oh, wait a minute. I didn't even get it. Wait a minute. So we got he's bombing in Vietnam, bombing in Cambodia. They got whole bodies of literature. Kissinger negotiating black majority rule in Southern Africa. So this is not quite South Africa. This is Rhodesia, which became Zimbabwe, probably in the process of becoming Zimbabwe at the time period that they're writing about. Even that, they're talking about his involvement there and all of the white backlash against Mugabe and, uh, we can't let the Negroes take over and, uh, all the... <laughs> Come on. Again, once again, is he a racist, Henry Kissinger? Or, hmm. Learn a little bit about everything if they're going to talk about Henry Kissinger and questions that might even be a question is he a racist they're talking about all this in Vietnam seems like he messed over a lot of dark people yes hmm anyway the book club uh, almost getting to the end and the racism will just get more and more flagrant as we continue because now it's white man in Africa white man in Africa <laughs> what can't even say anymore white man in Africa Harriet A. Washington, the great, get two mentions today. She wrote a whole essay. I'm trying to see if she did any talks about this. Harriet A. Washington wrote an entire essay about white doctors in Africa. 
Swango was just one on a long list. Racism and white doctors in Africa. This was published the same year that medical apartheid was released, which does have that chapter talking about the chemical biological weapons program in South Africa. That was a global white enterprise. Nobody got the same thing with Swango white doctors involved with that. Nobody got punished. Learn something about everything. This has been the sneakiest, best book of the year easily. Not even close. I was looking forward to reading this book since last year. Time is right, niggas, and exact. I do not think I would have enjoyed it as much if we had read it been almost two years because it was at the very beginning of 2022. It would not have been as fun or as informative having waited that is the case sometimes with books. You're supposed to read them when you are supposed to read them. Let's see. Uh, book Club Thursday, Catherine Massey Book Club, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It has been a hoot. Uh, and, and even this has been an especial hoot for me because this book was published in 99. They were are still unraveling everything that Swango did so there's a lot more information that was published after this book was published that was you know helps even make sense of some of the things that we're hearing about great book to research because they have lots they have so much material uh, covering him in lots of different states very informative great read especially if you have any connection to the health care system you you should know about Michael Swank. Like, uh, dare I say, as a total idiot, moron, about healthcare matters, if you are a non white person in healthcare, Swango should maybe be like a, a pet project of yours. There are whole people, they have jobs in healthcare just because of Michael Swango. That white woman I was talking to last week. Asked me if I knew about the Tylenol murders. Of course, duh. But you should know about Michael Swango. They have lots of literature, great books, documentaries galore, and it has such a pressing influence, so critically important to healthcare, whether you're a patient, you work there, whatever. You should know Mike Swango. Every really everybody in the profession. Yes. Jesus Christ. Make sure that never happens again. I don't think that's the way it is, but you as a non-white person, for sure, you should know about Michael Swango. Maybe even give that book out as Christmas gifts and what have you. Put that, put that with Dr. Francis Cresswell's reminder. She's a medical doctor. Bang, bang. Reminder, Francis Fanon, medical doctor. Very important for the counter-racist purposes. Let's see. Uh... The first audio report that we started with, they talked about how Israel's military or war budget thus far, they spent $50 billion. Now, I thought it was significant, specifically since we had someone write in talk about, you know, they hope that Hamas is wiped out. May have been a white person who wrote that. I have no idea. Uh, but they didn't even mention, unless I was not paying attention, how much has the Hamas budget been? They get 50 million, 20 million, 
Oh, it's billion. I apologize. So Israel, 50 bill. B. So Hamas, do they get 50 billion too? 40 billion? 20 billion? 1 billion? They didn't even give us a number. Is this a, what they, what they say? Is this a fair fight? Hmm. Fuller did say, he said, uh, I don't want to hear all that. We don't have the money. You just get $50 billion out of nowhere to go bomb and kill, I think, non-white people. Again, Vietnam, Cambodia, anytime, any place, any generation. Bomb non-white people to be killed? Let's get them. Could we get a sandwich? I don't know. I don't know. We don't really have money. We got bombs to make, dark people to drop, dark people to kill. Uh, the got Kissinger the segment in Missouri where they talked about the difference between getting a warrant to go and arrest someone that's the normal due process Fuller talks about that all the time as opposed to a wanted and they talked about they had uh, Timothy Reinhardt as the subject I think that sounds like a German name I saw the pictures. To me, he looks like someone who would easily be accepted, classified as a white man. I thought it was so significant, particularly for this area, Ferguson, St. Louis region of Missouri, uh, for them to use Mr. Reinhardt as the example. Oh, man. They just got took this uh, guy's uh, clerk's word that I was shoplifting and he could take a picture of my vehicle and bang, stop me and pull me over all aggressively and cuff me up like... Mm-hmm. Due process for sure is important. Absolutely. But man, I seriously doubt that this wanted system, which is not a warrant where they said you don't do the, the legwork. You're kind of lazy. Just, oh, you took a picture of this. OK, we'll go and snatch them up right quick. Take care of that for you. Like, oh, my God. I cannot even fathom the mum, the number of Michael Brown Jr. Because that's what happened to him. Uh, he strong arm robbery walking down the sidewalk. Now they say that's not why he was stopped because he was uh, jaywalking, you know, out in the middle of the street like he owns the neighborhood or something. Who are you? And then everything ensues. But man, but that's it. Wrong identity. Nothing like that. Is this the right vehicle? None of that. Just bang, under arrest. Wanted not a warrant all these different ways that they have a, that exact that is exactly what fuller talks about when he talks about due process consistently in the system of white supremacy either just flagrantly violating all of that like with the goon squad and or finding ways where we can avoid having to do all that and it's still considered legal we just didn't do the warrant. We didn't have time. We just did the wanted, you know. But I it, I could easily see where they could have done that and probably got a whole lot of dark people, non-white people in the Ferguson region where, yes, they have been hemmed up on some wanted charge. Nefarious, probably. Let's see. B. They had these segments. I don't have children. They had the segment. Uh, also in uh, Missouri, uh, talking about the Baptist church abusing all of these children. 
uh, and they're going to the boarding school saying the boarding school was the church and abusing all of these folks. Now, I did not play that for the documentary and all that. I didn't watch that. Uh, in fact, it looked like at least the people that they talked to, these would be classified as white. But anything where they're talking about the ease of taking advantage of these adopted children, children that have been in foster care, anything like that. That's another one. Somebody I remember said frequently, stop producing throwaway children. That sort of thing is rampant with throwaway children. Oh, and that's another one I forgot. I forgot. White people do not care about children. That's when they even were driving the Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts and eh, I got all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Institutional problem. Yes. Long run. Long running. Yes. Uh, but I could easily. And Missouri, they had already talked about that's a region where, oh, my gosh, we got all these children piled up in foster care, particularly black children with. Oh, yeah, it would be easy to have lots of throwaway children. And you probably couldn't even get a documentary about that. Nobody even wants to hear about little Mike Brown Jr. in foster care and somebody did what to you and what and all these draconian punishments and such. Did you hear all that? White people do not care about you. They had even some of the white children. They couldn't even describe it. They were asking them, can you tell us what it was like? And they sound like they had been so traumatized they couldn't even put words to it, which I totally get. But that's why I think somebody used to say, no throwaway offspring. I sequenced that deliberately. The report talking about the young children who are being targeted, the uh, sextortion, they're calling it. And they said specifically with this, it's 13 to 18 year old young boys who are being targeted with these scandals. I've seen lots of reports in the newspaper about all of this. I've you know recommended repeatedly talk to your children about this get that report uh, I was in the LA Times and many other papers I just said the LA Times because that would be the local paper for this incident where it was a white enforcement officer in Virginia traveled across the continent killed an entire family and kidnapped a 15 year old where he had been doing this messaging online it would be mandatory you got to talk to your show them that report they can read it if they can't read it on their own, you read it to them. And then we'll discuss. Have the whole family talk about this. This is not some abstract and we're just being goofy. He kidnapped the child and killed the whole family. Set the house on fire too if that matters. But I mean, dang, if you killed the family, they can't really enjoy the house anyway. But he killed the family and burned the house down and kidnapped the 15-year-old. That's just one of Many, many, and this was a 15-year-old female, so that's not even what we're talking about with these young boys and the sextortion scam. They said, 13, you waited too long. You got to do it early, often. Early, often. 13, you waited too late. That's why I said with the smartphone, I would wait as long as you can. With that, it would be late with having the discussion about why we're waiting on the smartphone, that is early. Often. 
and just show the reports because there's there's no shortage. That's why I said I'm I'm so glad I do not have children. This is what you have to talk about with them. They got to know who Jerry Sandusky is. We got to talk about this at 10, 9. That's why I said, really, that report, Shawnee Mission East High School, that young, I think, young 15-year-old, black female, black girl who was assaulted in Kansas, I shared Toriano Porter. He works, he's a journalist for the Kansas City Star. I shared the report that he wrote about all of that. I was reminded he was a guest on our program this past summer, even though we have a white guest only program, but there had been so much happening in Kansas. Roger Golubsky and Ralph Yarl, and uh, they had a black male who was outside of Liquorland, uh, some alcohol establishment, and a race soldier came up, threatened him, and stabbed him to death. And on, it just went on and on and on. Ralph Yarl is a 16-year-old who went to pick up his brother and went to the wrong house. And some geriatric race soldier white man said, don't you ever come to my residence and shot him. Almost killed him. He's lucky to survive. I think that trial is coming up uh, for that race soldier sometime soon. But all of this had been taking place. And even Timothy Hazlitt, the white race soldier, suspected sexual predator who had been kidnapping black females. That case is coming up, too. But all of this is happening in the same area, Kansas, right on the border with Kansas City, Missouri. This uh, we talked to Toriano Porter this summer. He said, I have a son who's about the same age as Ralph Yarl, about 15, 16 years old. And I said, oh, dang, did you talk to him about all of that? He said, no. He said, you know, just I try to have a space uh, where I don't have to bombard him with just all of this terrorism and how awful it is and all the rest of it which again I don't even have children victims guaranteed qualified I totally get it my view the great Joe Lewis you can run can't hide it does not matter what age you are they said 13 you waited too late you got to do it before then have to talk to your children early and often about white supremacy, racism. Uh, you might not want to do it. I get it. I wouldn't want to do it. But hey, this is having children on the plantation. Hey, on the plantation, you could be sold at five years old. So you might have to tell your child a lot about how this plantation works at five, four, <laughs> as soon as possible. We're still on the plantation. If you don't want to have these conversations, and in fact, maybe that's the way we should think about all this. If you don't want to talk to your eight-year-old about racism, maybe you don't want to have children in a system of white supremacy racism. And the genius Bay Area mom, she told us that is all right. In fact, I encourage that one. I asked Fuller about that, like, should we be having a whole lot of children in the system of white supremacy? And he said, yeah, have the children. They have assignments to carry out, man. In my view, it is self-evident. We non-white people, victims of white supremacy, the bulk of us, we are not on our assignment, not even close. A lot of that starts 
we don't even get a chance to find out that we got an assignment or something we're supposed to be doing that's constructive. Why? It starts. What was the childhood like? Oh, mm. when did you learn to read? Oh, mm. if you're not ready to have serious dialogue, even before we get to the bedroom, what are we going to tell our children about racism, sexual terrorism? Conversate. When do we give them this phone? How often? What does that conversation sound like? Let's talk to other parents. What do you tell your children about all this? If you don't want to do that, maybe you should think twice about producing offspring in the system of white supremacy racism. Again, we don't have to have the children. Not having children is exponentially better than the throwaway children that we leave for Jeffrey Epstein and Jerry Sandusky, Mary Kay Letourneau, Seattle's own. Don't you think? I think that's a no-brainer, right? Not having the children is better than the throwaway children, don't you think? Unless you think they're going to end the system of white supremacy racism, and like I said, the evidence, to me at least right now, seems pretty overwhelming that these children do not end up being on their assignment. Not even close. Let's see. Anything else to make sure? Oh, man. Brianna Brown. Everybody's named Brianna. We had two different people named Brianna with different spellings that were mentioned in reports for workplace racism yesterday. All non-white females. Anyway, young lady Brianna Brown, she was suspended from school. Toriano Porter's uh, report for the Kansas City Star, I did learn that. She got a five-day school suspension and a broke nose and called a negra repeatedly for being accosted by this white brute racist child. Racist child. She got a five-day school suspension. I would... That's another one. See what I mean? Now, are we going to subject our child to that? Really? Get pop- She says she's terrorized. Don't, I don't even want to walk these halls. I don't blame her. I wouldn't either. And I got a suspension on top of that. They got, they got to put a mark on my record. I'm some kind of delinquent because he called me some racist brute who is way bigger than me, calls me a nigger repeatedly, breaks my nose, and I get a five-day school suspension? Once again, like, we've seen generations of this, right? Can't act like we're surprised. Like, they did what? What? That's what they always do. That's what they've done for, at this point, decades, quarter centuries, long time, more than a half century. Conversation to be had before you have the children. Are we really going to send our child off to this? Really? Really? We can't do anything better. Just pay. I got through it. Your mama got through it. Do the best you can. You know, they broke it. Well, we get your nose set. Do the best you can. Really? We're going to, that's what we're going to do. You don't have to have the children. I'd even, if we really can't come up with a better alternative than send them the white people to be educated and hoping for the best, do we really need to have these children? That's a question. Just a question. Anyway, uh, the 
Brianna Brown's father, who is also a victim of white supremacy. And hey, I don't have a criticism because there's no evidence that I would do. I can't say even a better job, even a quarter of the job that he's done to get his daughter to this point. So this is not a criticism of her father at all. Attempted father, not a criticism. No way. Uh, But he said that I'm supposed to be strong. I hold things in. I'm supposed to be the strong one. Victims guaranteed qualified. I don't know what that means about strong. I say that that gets us. And when I hear that associated with black people in our lame and pitiful condition, man, they even had my phrase. And it's almost 2024. Like, uh, 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 in my view, that is another one. When he said holding things in, I don't know what that means. A lot of times that is not constructive. That's how you end up with a lot of hypertension and what have you. I don't know exactly what he's holding in, but I think it would be much more healthy, uh, accurate and honest. I'm not strong as a black male and tell your child that I am not strong. Your black mother, she is not strong. We are weak in the system of white supremacy racism being truthful about things and if you can't be honest with your children about that if that's something you feel like you got to hold back you got to hold that in maybe we shouldn't have the children I'm of the opinion it is better to be honest it's better for that child for them to know honestly about the world that they're in really the danger that they are in this is that Brianna Brown she was in danger she could have been killed they said that they said I'm thankful she's alive yep she could have been killed He would have been out protesting. He killed a student. Can't believe it. Called her a nigger too. Anyway, if you are an attempted parent, uh, all of this to be discussed before you get to the bedroom. And then they said it. The phrase is early and often. Early and often. Early often. Discussing racism, white supremacy and sexual abuse online otherwise early often talk about your school experience too that's another one you don't need a manual you can talk to them about your work experience you can talk to them about your school experience between the two parents you can even pull your grandparents and relatives in on that one what happened to you at school with white people what happened to you on your job with white people and then we'll get we can fill in all the rest of it later. But that should be enough to at least get the conversation rolling early often. I'm sure they'll have questions, too. So your children early often early often early often number again, six oh five three one three. Five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. If we can do anything to help facilitate that, let me know. I know we have had young people on for COVID nineteen. If there's anything we can do to 
help facilitate uh, young people talking about racism, what they've experienced at school or otherwise, let me know. Um, young folks came multiple times, right, to chat with us for COVID-19. So if the cows can be of service in facilitating that those early frequent dialogues, let Gus T know, would be happy to facilitate. Uh, let's see. Uh, listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the cows is constructive, hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com PayPal button in the top right corner beneath the button. You'll see the links for Venmo cash app and PayPal enormous gratitude to all of the listeners investors who've kept the cows on if we get to february for 15 years hopefully we have been mostly accurate worthy of your time and energy as always you can share the program uh we're on twitter or x eh, at until justice on facebook we have the cows group as well uh share links for the program on YouTube, Podbean, Podchaser, Blueberry, Amazon Music, Spotify, many other uh, Apple Podcasts, many other outlets. Share, let folks know if you think non-white people, victims of white supremacy, would benefit from the cows. At least knowing about Michael Michael Swango. Hmm? Don't eat the spicy chicken during the holiday season at work. Yes. Let's see folks who dialed in if they have thoughts, commentary to share. Uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm. Lauren should be with us. Nap other hands as we proceed. Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, evening, everyone. Thank you for allowing me to speak. I about the segments that were played um, when they talked about the. I guess they called it rioting in Ireland. All the white people who got just very violent, um, and, you know, were burning things down, being destructive, and they did all that because of what they said an immigrant. Um, stabbed school children and her teacher, I think. Um, you know, when I read about it in the paper, they kept using that term immigrant, but they didn't say he was non-white. But when I saw a picture, it was definitely a non-white person. Um, that was the reason that they were doing that. And in the segment that they played, they, you know, they it was a couple of things that they said, like they were demonizing certain groups. That's non-white people, I would guess. And then they said something about disenchanted voters um, don't have political representatives. So I think, you know, maybe that's the way that they were um, articulating it, that they don't have, um, you know, someone there like a Donald Trump or a Bolsonaro, someone who's uh, more overtly racist in the things that they say. They don't have that kind of person elected. So I guess the white people in that area of the world are, pretty frustrated about that. Um, when they were talking about the guy, Tim Reinhardt in St. Louis, the one who got pulled over, it was a question asked um, in that segment. 
The question was, is it unusual for the police to know so little about the people they're arresting? And the answer was no, not at all. I thought, you know, that was interesting, pretty noteworthy. Um, let me see. So later, they're talking about the safe drinking water. Um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, was she talking about this entire area of the world, um, the United States or whatnot, but she said, we're approaching the day when water from your kitchen tap will be safe, something along those lines. I, I hope I said that correctly. She said, no matter how much money you make, where you live, or what your skin color is, that she had to put that part on the end really makes me think that that's, that's just a dubious statement. I, I don't think that's what's going to happen. If everyone was supposed to have water um, that didn't have lead in it, um, we wouldn't have lead pipes. And when they realized everybody had lead pipes, they would have done something about it then. I don't, hey, I hope I am incorrect. I hope they get rid of all of the lead pipes. Um, that will cost a lot of money. And I just, that would be a lot of help to give non-white people in the system of white supremacy. I don't think it's going to happen. Also, she said the real heroes are those who have lead in their drinking water. That's that's what I wrote down. Um, and then she described people opening dozens of bottles of water to make potatoes on so-called Thanksgiving, I think. That, that doesn't sound like the description of a hero to me. Now, I, maybe I don't really understand what a hero is. Um, I don't know. Maybe, you know, if someone produces justice, uh, I, I would think that person was a hero. That the part where they were talking about let us pray, the white people from the independent fundamental Baptist, I guess it's some kind of religious organization, um, they were talking about these people victimizing children in a sexual manner. And the person, the the male uh, speaking, he said, and this is unfortunate phrasing, he said something about it will bring you to your knees. And I think he said it two times. That is a double entendre. I did not think that was the best choice of words. Um, hmm. Also, they talked about this. Hiles method. I think that's what they called it. I'm not familiar with that. I've never heard of it, and I don't know how to spell it. I don't know if it's spelled like Heil, like Heil Hitler, or Heil, like H-I-L-E. I'm not sure what that is, but they were just talking about beating children into submission. Um, they talked about a get-right room, an isolation room, and just having a child stand with their nose to the wall for extended periods of time. I mean, not like 10 minutes. They said like weeks or months. I'm, I don't even know. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it just seems so extreme. And, you know, how could you do that to a child? That would be, I don't know. Man. So, you know, anyone who would think of that sort of punishment for a child, there's no telling what else, what else they're doing to these children. And it just, it was really sad. Um, and the sextortion part where they're getting these pictures from children and then, you know, requesting money. Um, they used the term blackmail. I thought that was interesting. You know, it just made me think about blackmails, um, you know, kind of being the most victimized, mistreated people in a system of white supremacy. 
Also, there was a question asked in that segment. Um, the guy asked, should you monitor your children? The lady responded, you know, I have to listen to that again because maybe, you know, she answered and I didn't hear it, but I don't think the question was answered. You know, she said they're smarter than us on these devices and she did all this talking. I don't think she stated whether you should monitor your children. And if that's the case, children are smarter than us on these devices. Um, you know, if you can't monitor what your child is doing on these devices, it can be dangerous. Maybe just don't give it to them. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's what I was thinking. I with the with the little girl Brianna Brown who got her nose broken. It just seemed like um, some some metaphors used in that one. But there was a couple of sentences. Um, where they were saying, like, the response is the same response they've been getting for years, empty promises. Yeah, white people, you know, they do that all the time. You know, I guess that's their code. They just, they don't really deviate. I guess it's been working. It was the metaphors, like, um, the district must move forward and continually evolve. I, I don't really know what those things mean. Um Got a, it's 2023, and then he said he could be thankful to God. I don't know. So started talking about that. I'm not really sure. I guess he could be thankful that she was still alive, but, you know, a lot of mistreatment. Um, the albino affairs, The when they talked about the rare all-white deer, um, it was called pretty spectacular. And then they said it was leucistic. They said that about the white raven in Kenai, Alaska, back in July 2023. They said, well, you know, this this raven is an albino. It's, it's leucistic. You know, it has blue eyes, not pink eyes. And I think white people are making that distinction because, you know, they have blue eyes um, typically and not pink eyes. Um, I know a person who has albinoid characteristics. Some people will call this person an albino. They do not have red eyes. They have brown eyes. Clearly, um, you know, albinoid characteristics are different types, different levels of albinism. White people are pretty smart. They're scientists. They, they know this. They just say anything. I think they don't want us to make the connection but between albino animals and their albinoid characteristics. They don't want to be thought of as albinos, as people with genetic mutations and that's what, you know, albinoid characteristics are, whether you call it logistic or not. Um, and just in the last week, it's been some pretty interesting news that wasn't covered on today's program. Um, it was like an article about what's happening in Vermont. And, you know, I thought about that because they've been, you know, trying to pay people to stay there. And then it was an article in New York, in the New York Times about the racism there. Um, George Santos was expelled. And I just, I thought about that, you know, he's expelled from the house. He did a lot of lying, you know, similar to a Donald Trump, but he is not a white man. So there was some punishment about that. And there was also some more news about the the goon squad, the deputies who were, the, the law enforcement officers who shot that uh, black male in the mouth. Um, and they gave more information than I had read about them before, and they keep doing, um, in the articles, just unusual things with people's food. You know, the cho chocolate syrup, milk was involved. 
and more sexual type things with um, people's buttocks. Um, the article said deputies jabbed a flashlight threateningly at his buttocks. So um, I don't know. I was just sharing that. And um, that's all I have for now. Thank you. Well, jabbed. Mm. Much obliged, Lauren. Um, I think I did share the report from the New York Times, at least. I know I mentioned it when we talked with Jamie Salazar on Wednesday because he hadn't heard about that incident at all. Uh, But he did in the book talk about the black, excuse me, the white enforcement officials in Texas snatching a black female who was uh, barely dressed and she made a point of that and saying well at least let me get dressed and they ah nigga woman ah, and they snatched out uh, the whole time and he included the part about how they had their brothels and red light district uh, if you want to call it that they had all of this set up they called it the reservation uh, where the dark people live and he said that the people who used that mostly were classified as white all of it the sexual uh, abuse sexual barbarism all of it was right there and I said oh man the goon squad in Mississippi it's right same thing you're talking about Texas but this is in uh, Mississippi right next door he said he hadn't even heard about it oh yeah the New York Times article how a goon squad of deputies got away with years of brutality <laughs> oh yes they've got rammed a stick down his throat Let's see different raid they choked Mitchell Hobson with a lamp cord and waterboarded him to stimulate drowning that raid took place at the home of Rick Loveday a sheriff's deputy in a neighboring county who said he was dragged half naked from his bed at gunpoint that's exactly what I read talking Mr. Selleck dragon except it was a black female before deputies jabbed a flashlight threateningly at his buttocks and then pummeled him relentlessly oh and then they go to the incident that we talked about uh, from this summer that's the one that I said the one from this summer they immediately pivot to that one with Michael Jenkins Eddie Parker Uh, they were on uh, Democracy Now and went into great detail about what happened that's where I caught that oh man one of these dudes Christian Deadman even that Christian uh, that he is the relative of Daryl Deadman who killed a black male ran him over deliberately in 2007 2011 excuse me uh, in Mississippi uh, hate crime in jail I think he's supposed to be locked up uh, for life uh, let's see anything else oh but yeah they they did not include that the uh, dildo part right there with the Jenkins I'm going down to make sure maybe they brought it in later let's see no they didn't yeah see 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 now i mean i guess they could say you know it's the new york times and you know young people maybe they want them to read and be oh my god nap 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 if we got to get all the lewd details about old bill cosby and r kelly and all the rest of it and this is under the color of law and i'm using that that's the legal phrase and i think that was a part of the indictment for these folks you got a badge 
you are an enforcement official. What did the, the details? I mean, that's what they say. The devils are the details. Nah, man, you got to include that too, man. Like all of it. Make it. I mean, even the, the threateningly jab with the buttocks, we got that. But I mean, nah, man, don't be leaving out pertinent details. And they did that frequently with this case. Uh, let me see. Anything. Miss. Got all there. Oh, let's see. Over the past year, then like I said, power sheriffs in rural Mississippi have dodged accountability in the face of misconduct allegations. The reporting exposed numerous sexual abuse accusations against two sheriffs in counties near Rankin, along with evidence that Sheriff Bailey obtained subpoenas to surveil his girlfriend's phone calls. Hmm. Again, this would be a great example of why I'm a fan of reading the news. Uh, white people do lie. Even in my view, that is a lie right there. When you omit dildos and things like that, that are pertinent parts of the report, that's lying by willful omission. But there's important information. And just to be reminded about this case, like, oh, yeah, that did just happen a couple weeks ago. Yeah, don't just be letting that fall out of memory because we moved on to what's going on in the Gaza Strip and what have you. This is right here, right down the road. Uh, let's see. Anything else? Ranking deputies appear to have targeted people based on suspected drug use, not race. Most of their accusers were white. Their tactics could have been pulled from the Jim Crow era where sheriffs and their deputies harassed and beat black Southerners and civil rights activists. They coerced confessions, blah, blah, blah. All of this, incidentally, is happening in Jackson, where they also don't have water. I was glad that she mentioned that as well, Lauren, because I had forgot uh, to bring that up. I heard the same language in that report from NPR, uh, and that was, make sure I give out her full name, uh, Angela Gayadine, I think is how you say it, G-U-Y-A-D-E-E-N, uh, Gayadine. Uh, you all have to judge for yourself if you think she'd be accepted as a white woman or no. I'm not sure. But she said that, uh, glad you mentioned the community, that word again. So there's a couple pieces to your question. The first is, you know, I think the real heroes here are those who unfortunately have experienced the lead in the drinking water crisis, such as those in Flint and Newark and in many other places across the country. Freddie Gray is the hero. I don't know what she meant by the word hero either, but man, and she didn't even mention Baltimore in here, but man, she's so many places who has time. Uh, I don't think of Freddie Gray as a hero for being a victim of lead poisoning and a victim of white supremacy. I don't think of any of the numerous black people in Flint or Newark, Benton Harbor, any of the other locations. And it just goes on and on and on where they don't Jackson, where they don't have water. I don't think of them as heroes. I think of them as victims. In fact, let's see. Do we think more accurate victim hero? I don't think it's anything heroic about not being able to flush your toilet. I don't think it's anything heroic about having brain damage. I don't think it's anything heroic about having to go on a scavenger hunt to get usable water. None of that sounds heroic to me. Maybe we have a different, maybe I have the wrong understanding of the word hero. Lauren, too. Anyway, they don't ever talk about Superman being a hero because he is thirsty. 
double entendre for me. Number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Again, be here uh, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Check the social media, other online sites. I will update uh, for coming programs as we roll into the last month of 2023. Uh, Again, hopefully folks can be constructive, so-called holidays or what have you. I don't know if you all are uh, doing all that meeting family and relatives and all the rest of it. Uh, Be safe if you have to partake uh, with regards to any of that. And uh, yeah, keep it constructive. If it seems like it is heading towards a non-constructive path, I don't know. You can perhaps see if you can guide things back to being constructive, talking about constructive things to eat, exercise, making sure. Hey, do you have water water strips? Test your water here. (laughs) Make sure we're not getting poisoned water for our feast and all of that see if you can angle it back to something constructive if not well same rule we use for the work office parties deuces we will do this again next year maybe everyone stay safe constructive sober get home safely anywho uh make sure we give folks uh about five or so they have additional comments questions they would like to share star six one uh, make sure some of the other tidbits that I forgot. Going back even uh, with my own notes, uh, keep an eye, see if folks have any other, any other comments they want to get in last five or so. Uh, from my own notes, the... Oh, Sandra Day O'Connor, former Supreme Court Justice. I think she was the first white woman that they allowed on the bench died this week. Uh, I would expect lots of uh, conflation uh, where they bring in all of the feminism and lots of oath. That might even be a research project. What was her record on racism? Dare I even say affirmative action? See what her record was. That might be interesting. I think I did something similar when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died not too long ago, and she also had some, what would you expect a racist white woman to say about Black Lives Matter, and I think even Colin Kaepernick. I have to go back to double check on Kaepernick, but I know for sure she had some rather interesting commentary to make about Black Lives Matter. Again, what does it mean to be white? What would I expect a racist white woman to say? But I would be on the lookout for that. Lots of uh, conflation as we go out uh, towards the end of the calendar year, Sandra uh, Day O'Connor, uh, former Supreme Court Justice. Maybe they'll lay off of, of Clarence Thomas for a few days. Maybe, you think? No. Let's see. Also, wanted to make sure I got in as well before I get uh, some of the other folks with a hand up. Uh, I had mentioned last week, I talked about some of the folks who big advocates of following Mr. Fuller, but then they still go out and name call and all of that, which, you know, that is allowed, right? Victims guaranteed qualified. I am curious. This is another question thinking about, right? So the people that are big advocates at least say that they love them some brother, Dr. Fuller, 
but they still name call. They love brother Dr. Fuller. He says there is one race, the white race. Lots of us, us being non-white people, totally reject that. Got to be black and proud, man. You heard Jim Jones. I'm black and I'm proud. I love blacks. Okay, kick that one. It's not one race because I'm a part of the black race. I said, no bragging on your blackness. Now just say I'm black and proud. Okay, ditch that one. VGQ. Uh, Fuller says, resist the urge to criticize other non-white people victims of racism. Certainly it's different with white people. Forget that. I got to identify a coon as a coon. Okay. (laughs) He says, minimize conflict with other non-white people victims of racism. You just heard me. I got to call a coon a coon. Fuller even got in the 10 stops. No cursing. We're G rated, right? I do try to do my part. I do get in a filth floor from time to time, but I mean, hey, we're G rated. We've had 10 year old co-hosts G rated. Generally speaking, I stand by our record. Even that lots of fucking filth floor and filth floor and filth floor. Certainly it is victims guaranteed qualified, but I mean, dang. If you're doing all this fuller, 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 and then bragging on your blackness, I'm a member of a race. I love to name call and I love to criticize other victims. Of race. What aspects of fuller do you like so much? How is it reflected in your conduct, thought, speech, action, how you treat other non-white people? What is it exactly? I'm just questioning out loud something folks can think on, but I've seen that rather rampant. People who would do the same thing with Dr. Welsing, all that. I love me some Dr. Welsing and Francis Crest and, you know, that's the God, grand godsester and all the rest of it, grandsester and blah, 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 blah. And they turn right around and name call it black. Like, what happened to black self-respect? Didn't she say that once or twice, I thought? Question, observation, I might be talking foolish, often accused of doing so. Other folks with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Yes, sir, may I be heard? Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, Gus, I was thinking about uh, where you mentioned, where I guess Mr. Fuller mentioned about if you see someone or a white person saying, you know, I love me some black people. I did hear somebody say that on the job, so I was I was uh, chuckling at that. Um, but in the audio segment where the victim was assaulted, had her nose broken and everything, uh, I think it was a part in that segment where they mentioned about, I guess, trying to get some kind of a law put into place or something about, and I think they said people of color uh, having to defend themselves. And I was, I was like, man, are they admitting that white people 
mainly the ones that are or the only ones that can practice racism, you know, I thought in my mind uh, with that conclusion. And they use the word discrimination, not being able to encounter discrimination or discriminative or whatever events or something. It's like they, they willfully um, avoid using the word racism. And they definitely going to use white supremacy. Uh, and I, I noticed in that segment as well where the victim or maybe it was the parent or another non-white person that was speaking said that and the, the teachers, are, you know, no one wants to do anything about it. I think they mean somebody white. I think, you know, a group of white people are not taking it seriously and not want to um, make the white people who are engaged in this conduct uh, face any consequences. But I guess they said this person or this um, white child, white teen are facing charges, but even with that, you know, what's going to happen with that necessarily? Um, it'll be interesting to keep up with the updates on that. Uh, there was another segment where they were talking about the, the child abuse. I think they, I forgot what the state was. And it reminded me of how when they said that these people that were engaged and abusing the children or locking them up in some kind of isolation room and saying that they'll just tell them everything that you're bad. And they've been facing these uh, acts of abuse, sexual abuse, I guess, since they were um, very young and telling them this and telling them that they're bad and something's wrong with them, they're evil or whatever. And, you know, they'll start to believe it. And I know that's how they victimize victims of racism, black people non-white people and um and i thought like what you mentioned often white people don't care about children and my last thing i like to mention is on the news earlier this week i seen here locally it's not in the county that i'm in but there was a school i guess in broward county i think it's called monarch high school they did like this uh they did this walkout, I guess, because of um, transgender athletes or something, or some kind of student not being able to participate in a, in a volleyball team or something. And I just recall seeing a whole bunch of students walk out of the school. Uh, yeah, and I think it was like early on this week. And, and of course, and where I'm staying at, Tim Tebow's all over the news again. Um, I don't know, maybe he's doing some kind of charity thing, whatever, but they had him at the stadium. <laughs> and then and then they also said 44 people were ejected from the Florida-Florida State game. So I know that's uh, racist, white supremacist, alcohol, or, or white people drinking alcohol, you know, so. That's all I have to say. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Wow. My man, Tim Tebow. Love it. Oh, he looks like he's uh, he's buying a soccer team. 
a professional, he's going to be a part owner. Well, yeah, same thing. Going to be a part owner for, for professional soccer teams. They had to come do the press conference and get everybody in North Florida to come out, get excited, and oh, it's going to be great. The legend, Tim Tebow. It grew. I told you, man, that would have been if I could be one white dude. Let me be Tim Tebow in the name and the image likeness era. <sighs> Made all the money you could ever print. They'd have put my face on $100 bills. Tebow's, man. That's what they call Tebow's. All about the Tebow's, man. Uh, the chick at work who said that <clears throat> she loves black people. It was a female. Is that the same person, the same female who, who wears her FAMU shirt uh, to work? Oh, it's so close. You, you almost got it. You almost got it. She is the other white woman that has three offspring from two black dudes. Dang. Dang. Cowbell, indeed. Oh, well. Uh, either way, either way, equally run. Um, it. I wouldn't care who said it. That is nothing endearing. Oh my goodness, I am safe now, and she definitely got my back. And run. Uh, the self-defense component. I heard that as well when they were talking in uh, with Brianna Brown and uh, the black students, I guess, and all that were being abused in Kansas and. Yeah, now that would be that would be interesting. I'd have to see like how that uh, progresses, how they write it up, how it's worded. Uh, but I mean, that's what I thought. she got a five day school suspension. Some racist ogre uh, is coming and calling me nigra and all this, and you got it on video. This is not even a he said, she said, and well, I don't know. You don't have, nope, you got it all on video. Five dead. I mean, that's like a whole week. They're supposed to be working towards like restorative justice and all of that. And they got all those studies that, you know, you suspend a student like, oh, man, they are way more likely to drop out of school and get behind on their work and all this. And especially if they're non-white. All of them five days. That's a whole week, man. I would be I would love to see it like if they put that in. But wow, I could see white people fight because that that is almost kind of leaning towards saying like, dang, so only white people can practice racism. Hmm. And the non-white people can fight back if something like this, like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> like, uh, woof. let's see it. Let's see how that all progress. I, I would see I would think white people would fight that tooth and nail like Ron DeSantis and everybody. They would have rallies uh and we are all uh heading to kansas immediately and woke has gone wild is is al sharpton to blame and obama has he been here and you know it would be hellfire and brimstone racism run amok if they yeah, i will have to see how all of this progresses it might all be forgotten about in a few days so we'll have to see um the isolation room i'm just bringing that up because he mentioned that as well the caller in florida the uh that was mentioned with Timothy Hazlitt, the white man. I said with Kansas, his trial should be coming up. Talked about that with Toriano Porter as well. Uh, sexual predator, that's what he's accused. They said he had built his own dungeon isolation room in his residence. That's how they found him. Uh, black female escaped and she had the dog collar. 
uh, on her neck and all the rest of it. Since she had been in the dungeon and some didn't make it, then they started finding black female bodies in barrels over the summer. Said be on the lookout, might be more. That was Timothy Hassett. He had a isolation room too. Anywho, um, they never use racism. That's what I said with uh, Henry Kissinger. They got all these charges. You know, is he a war criminal? Is he a liar? Is he, is he a racist? Just look at the body count. All these non-white people that he killed in Vietnam. All these non-white people in Cambodia. Is he a racist? Can't even. He's dead now. We can't even ask that. Like, nah, we'll just stick to is he a liar? Hey. The number one aspect of white supremacy racism is deception. Anyway, uh, let's see. We'll see if uh, folks are satisfied they have anything else. Uh, Get your hand up in the next, we'll say, two minutes and counting. Uh, If you have anything else you need to add in before we get ready to wrap up, again, we'll be here for the book club on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific. Check uh, social media on X at Until Justice, uh, the Facebook group for the cows, other sites. Uh, Check to see when we'll have uh, programs during the week before the book club. Hopefully we'll have some more information on uh, Michael Swango as well. It's been such a uh, man, what to say? (laughs) A revealing case. Like I said, anyone, if you are connected to healthcare, you work in that field at all, you should read the book. You should know about Michael Swango. Maybe even make that like a, a research project uh, as you kind of matriculate. Even that can be such an easy question. You're around your peers, coworkers, really white or non-white. So many white people are into true crime. They say, especially white women. Hey, uh, do you know about Michael Swango? And see, just see, do they know? And if they do, how much do they know? Do they think this is relevant for the job? Definitely research your field. And Michael Swango is white, right? Also an exact about racism, white supremacy, white man, white killer goes to Zimbabwe to kill. They don't even know how many people he killed. I love the blacks. Uh, Retired firefighter in Florida. Do you have commentary? Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, I just have one quick report I, I thought I thought was interesting that I uh, saw today, December 2nd, uh, which is the day, 1859, I believe, Mr. John Brown was executed for the Harper's Ferry raid treason and insurrection I thought that was interesting uh, on uh, that happened actually on this date but it was back in course 1859 Uh, that's basically it Uh, I think I think uh, we were talking about John Brown not too long ago Uh, I think I think it was on this program on your program yeah that's it. 
uh, with Jamie Salazar this past Wednesday. We were talking about that's what it was. John Brown, Nat Turner. He writes about Nat Turner uh, in his book, and I brought it up because he said that most black people do not agree with the conduct of Nat Turner. And I asked him, I said, do you think that most black people, do you think they disagree with the actions of John Brown? He said, oh, he stopped and thought, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, hey, we've had a lot of black people come here and say that they had to sing hymns in school to John Brown. I'm not aware of anybody who sings hymns to Nat Turner. He gave lots of chuckling. We talked about the last. He said, yeah, I'm not aware of that either. Mm, mm, mm. I t- Dick Gregory scolded old Gus Tease. <laughs> no, man, don't you classify what John Brown did as the same category as no count Nat Turner at all. Not the same at all. Involved his children and all the rest of it before he stormed off. So, yeah, we were just talking and have talked about him repeatedly uh, throughout the years on the program. They don't even include Kansas, man. He hacked up bleeding Kansas. They want to talk about the long history. We went and hacked up all of those uh, white family members out there. They don't even talk about that. How is that not the same thing as Matt Anyway, being classified as white means you can do anything. Claim I'm a doctor. You're a convicted felon. No, I'm a doctor. Aren't you a terrorist? I'm a freedom fighter. What does it mean to be white? John Brown's body. Neely Fuller Jr. even said that they had to sing hymns. John Brown's body lies a molding in the grave. His truth is marching on. <sighs> Heavens. Anyway, uh, anything else folks need to get in before we wrap up? Soon, folks are good. They got the uh, Elvis Presley version of him singing uh, John Brown. I think that was they were sent. It was Dixie and John Brown at the same time. They even meld them together sometimes. John Brown and Dixie, all the Civil War uh, ditties that white people sang. We even got the little glory in when they were talking about uh, white people in Ireland and the white supremacy racism. Thought that was a great point Lauren made about the lack of distinction around the knifing attack that prompted all of the hooliganism on the part of white people uh, in Ireland even included that uh, in the preface to the report from uh, Glory reminded me how the Irish became white we had Noel Ignatiev on the program some years back as well talking about white people and uh, in the book uh, White on Black Jan Nedervan Peters. Uh, he joined us from Europe. He also talked about how uh, the Irish here, when they came stateside, they would join the Union forces, but we are for the Union, not the Negras. And they had a huge riot in the same hooligan behavior, huge riot because they were not in support of the Negras and, you know, all the rest. Learn a little bit about everything, particularly on a global scale. Learn a teaspoon just a little bit everything relates back to white supremacy racism but certainly if you're in the healthcare field swango should be just 
personal little project. I have a little free time. I read a little bit, read one article, maybe get me a few books on this, and then I can ask my colleagues and coworkers, you remember that Michael Swango do? And just see what they say. Much obliged uh, for folks tuning in. Hopefully it was worthy of your Saturday evening. If you're doing any of the holiday madness, uh, I would encourage sobriety. Uh, you want to have your wits at these events, family or otherwise, really, uh, just for a lot of reasons. Uh, and then <clears throat> they may have sobriety checkpoints uh, out, certainly as we get closer to the actual holiday and then New Year's Eve and all of that. You do not want to be out nighttime, anytime, really, especially once the sun goes down. No way. It's unsafe, likely to come in contact with race soldiers. Uh, and I mean, hey, psh- you do not want to be messing around with any of that. And then you got to get bailed out. And, uh, sobriety would be best. Share that with the young folks as well. If you got a party and, you know, do whatever for the end of the year, families coming in to visit and all of that, get to one location and stay there. That way you don't have to be out and about. You do not want to risk coming into contact with white people or non-white people when you are intoxicated and maybe can't think your best and maybe can't make the best decisions that is a recipe for total disaster can be fatal often is creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no throwaway offspring no gossiping no wasting non-white people's time and that includes your own context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.